One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigrant Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is John McAvoy. John McAvoy's story is the stuff of dreams. So the fact it's a reality is honestly really quite something. To call it inspirational is to almost undersell what he has achieved and chosen to do. Um, John was in prison serving his second sentence for armed robbery. It was a double life sentence, actually. And he was in the highest security prison in the UK when he discovered an ability he was on a rowing machine, one of the wardens in the gym noticed his speed, tallied it against current British and world records, and set John on a path to breaking them in prison. Breaking that record in prison was an epiphany for John, and in that moment, his life changed completely. No more crime, he was focused on becoming an athlete, and he achieved it and is now a Nike-sponsored athlete and a free man. But that's not all. Realising and understanding his ability to change and asking himself whether his life would have been different had he found sport and not organised crime at an early age, he uses his own example to inspire kids and encourage people tempted or involved in a life of crime to see that there is another option. He's even been invited to 10 Downing Street to share his views on the justice system and what can be done to improve it. As he says in the show, you can only know what you see. So he's made it his mission to show people what else is possible, what else is achievable. John's story is amazing, undoubtedly so, but his ability to grow, to transform and completely change his moral code is an example to anyone. And I honestly don't think it matters who you are, where you are in your life, where you're going, what you want to achieve. I think John's story is so rich and so full of inspiration and it's applicable to anyone. It's not a short episode. John was really generous with his time. But I think you'll get this sense from our conversation that there were legitimately at least a thousand other questions I could have asked him. So you never know. Maybe we'll be able to tap into that into another, in another show. I really hope you are inspired by John and his story. And as ever, I would obviously love to hear from you. But without any further ado, it's John McAvoy on The Emma Gunn Show. John McAvoy, welcome to The Emma Gunn Show. How are you? 
I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, honestly, you are somebody I've been wanting to have a conversation with for a while because I've heard you talk a few times and each time it's just blown me away. And to be able to have a version of your story on my podcast, seriously, is a massive honour. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So we've probably got, I mean, in a nutshell, I just don't know if you want to maybe... I will be obviously have explained to the listeners who you are, but in a nutshell, how would you describe yourself? Oh, um, I would describe myself as a, I've lived a very unusual life, not intentionally. Uh, I've probably, I've probably, I've not, oh, it's hard. I, me as a person, like I, I don't feel like me, my core, I've changed. But my outlook on life has, has been from like it's like it's gone from black to white. Um, my outlook on life has, has completely changed um, as, as, as I've grown up as a person and matured um, and through life experiences. But yeah, well, I, I've kind of just led a very sort of unusual life, which has been very unintentionally, um, which has obviously led me to being on your podcast today. <laughs> because I guess one of the most pivotal moments was like a moment that happened in your life uh, to summarise when you were aged eight and you met uh, your step- stepdad. Yes. And that led, also opened you up to a life of um, crime. And obviously you spent 10 years in prison. And just so I wanted to get it right, was it two years the first time and then eight years the second time? Yes, yes for armed robbery and then within while you were in prison you found sport it's probably like the really simple way of saying what happened yes it's a very yeah but in abbreviated manner it's the very short version of it um and the way that you found sport like the first time you were in prison it was just like you were in solitary and you just were like I'm going to do reps of this and you just built it up and then the next time was when you found rowing which leads you on to where you are today which is you are a Nike sponsored uh, triathlete Ironman yes that's correct and one thing that really struck me is well maybe we'll come back to this a little bit later because it's about when you're on the rowing machine but that moment when you were eight and you met your stepdad it does feel like it was such a pivotal moment do you think that had it been a sportsman you met at the age of eight that the story would have your story as it is now would have started then I think you probably have to go a little bit back before that. Like, I, I think when, when I was a little bit younger, before Billy came into my life, um, when my, so my real dad died before I was born. He had a massive heart attack in bed next to my mum. So he's 38 years old. My mum had been married to him for a, just over a year. She was eight months pregnant with me. He had a massive heart attack and he passed away next to her in bed. So when I was born, um, I, 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 didn't have like a, I didn't have a father figure in my life whatsoever. Um, and then when I started going to primary school, I kind of thought it was normal for like just to have a mum and a sister and have all these aunties bring me up. I didn't realise it, was, it wasn't normal not to have a dad. And it was only when I went to school and started interacting with other children um, that they started teasing me for not having a dad. And I then went home and, and I, had an, I asked my mum where my dad was. And then my mum never really explained to me where my dad was before this point because I never really asked. And she explained to me my dad had passed away and obviously I was very young. So she just simplified it and just said, your dad died before you were born and he sort of, he, he's gone to heaven. And, and, and then I, she used to take me down to the cemetery after that to start seeing his grave. And 
and it had a profound impact on me because when I was that young, like I can I can remember this so clear, crystal clear. When she explained to me that my dad had died, um, I was inquisitive about what death actually was, and that's quite morbid, but I was very inquisitive. Like I wasn't I had an understanding from a very young age I was not going to live forever. I knew like life wasn't just gonna keep going on and on and on. And then I developed this like his, like this fascination with history and my mum used to take me to museums and and she used to buy me these like little um, magazines every month. They were called discovery booklets. And every month was a different stage in history. And I used to put the puzzles together and it'd be about Napoleon and Henry VIII and World War One, World War Two. And when I was putting these puzzles together, and it's, they're for children, like I just had this awareness that like these people that I was reading about as a little boy had died like hundreds of years before I was born. But like I was, I knew I was reading about them and, and I knew about their lives and and then it, it just had such a profound impact on me that, that I, I wanted to do something with my life. Like I had this overwhelming desire when I become an adult, like I wanted to achieve something. I didn't want my life to be nothing. Like I wanted to, I wanted to be remembered. I wanted to have accomplished something with my life, and 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 I didn't want to be normal. I didn't want to be average. Um, and I, I it just, it, it's this feeling that I had as a little kid. Um, it was just overwhelming. And then when I was eight years old. Um, that's when my mum's ex-husband Billy come into our lives and then you can only class that situation as a perfect storm because he he was actually my sister's dad and I, my, I never really understood this because I was too young but my mum explained to me that my sister um, that was her real biological dad father and I just used to just think that my dad was my sister's dad um, and when he first came into our home when I was eight he asked me to go and make him a hot drink um, and I went and made him his cup of tea and I was just in awe of him when he walked through the front door. And like, I've said it so many times, but he had this big gold watch on his wrist. He was he, he just immaculately dressed, black hair, white teeth. And I just remember making him this drink, giving it to him, sitting in the living room, listening to him talk to my mum. And then when he left, he he, gave, he patted me on the head and he gave me a £20 note. And it was the first adult to ever give me paper money. And I just remember being in awe of him. And, and I, at the time, like I was a little boy, like I just wanted to go to Woolworths and buy loads of sweets and pick them. But then he left our home. Then my mum sort of explained, because I asked who he was, and my mum explained about she was married to him before she married my dad. Um, and then he'd come back into my mum's life and my sister's life, not to have a relationship with my mum, but he would start picking up my sister and taking my sister out. But my mum probably, um, looking back, she, 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 she obviously knew where he'd been for all those years. But she, I was too young to explain that he'd just been released from prison after serving 16 years for armed robbery. But my mum probably didn't want me to miss out in, in this situation that when he was taking my sister out to these nice places, he, he wanted to take me. And my mum didn't want to hold me back while my sister went because my mum probably wanted me to have a nice opportunity to go to nice places. But what ended up happening with the relationship that me and him started building up and bonding with each other is then he stopped taking my sister out and just continued to take me out. And he basically took me on as his son. And he and, and I and I, again, as a young person, I, I started sort of looking up to him as a father figure and someone that I respected and I admired. And and he and I remember like sometimes he'd pick me up from school and he had this big shiny Mercedes Benz as a little kid. Um, like kids would ask me questions, but obviously it plays into psychology as a little boy that that obviously this man's picking you up and stuff. And and so we just developed this really strong relationship. And obviously the more time I was spending with him. Um, I was too young to really understand, but he was kind of walking me into this road of this very high-end, organised criminal activity. Um, and obviously, if you don't know nothing, you only know what you know. And as you, if you walk down that path, 
as a very young, impressionable young kid, and you start getting to 9, 10, 11, 12, you kind of start becoming indoctrinated into that world, and you don't know no different. So then, like, someone once asked me a question about, like, did you ever realise your lifestyle was it, it was so abnormal? But I would look out at people that went to job, like, went to work every day, and to me, that was abnormal. I couldn't fathom as a young person why people did that, because people that I was around as a little kid, like these grown men that were 30s, 40s, 50s, that were multi-millionaires committing criminal activity, they didn't do that. And then it wasn't that they laughed at people that did it, but kind of this hatred towards the system about how corrupt and unfair it was. And it was like, these people are sheep and the system's manipulated them to do it. But we're not sheep and we don't we don't get manip- manipulated by the system. So and that had a real profound impact on me as a kid. And then that's why I sort of I started expressing it more and more and more as I started going to school and become more and more sort of disenfranchised with the system as a young person. And did you, one thing that I really noticed, because uh, I think the book, your book, which is brilliant, by the way, opens, or very early on, you talk about buying a shotgun, a sawn off shotgun in a car park from a, what, 40 something year old bloke. And what really struck me about when you were telling that story is how self-aware you were for like a young kid. Like it seemed like you were savvier than the bloke selling you the gun. That, yeah, that, 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 that stems from sort of, um, again, it's like the, you, the, <laughs> the indoctrination of the situation that you're in with the, in, in, the adults that are bringing you up, like the, the people that sort of, like the hierarchy of criminal activity, these 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 people that sort of I, I, I was sort of introduced to as a young person, like my stepdad and all of his friends, they were at the very, very top of the tree. Like, um, like my, my, my stepdad had five acquittals at the old Bailey and he, and he was a multimillionaire when he was 21 years old. Um, the police tried to shoot him two times. Like these were like the higher echelon of, of the criminal underworld. And, and to give you an example of this, when when I went to prison when I was a, when I was 20, 22, there was an article um, in the Telegraph, and it, I, I never forget this. I read this article whilst I was in prison, and it basically was talking about how organised crime had evolved in the United Kingdom over the last like forty years. And like in the sixties, it was about like sort of like gangsters and the Crays and the Richardsons, and that, that kind of like evolved through, and then organized criminals and people that were at the, that, that top end of that sort of organized criminal structure it become armed robbers and armed criminals were, were the ones that were robbing cash in transit vans and they listed uh five criminals that they said were instrumental in organized crime evolving in the united kingdom and three of those men bought me up so it was my stepdad my my, my uncle and, and one other of my stepdad's friends and these three of those out of those five were, were in my sort of group as it as when I was a kid like when I was 11 12 years old like we, we, they would come around the house we'd go around theirs my uncle got released from prison when I was 15 um so he was in my life so obviously they start putting all these morals and values in you what's right and what's wrong in that criminal world so obviously when I then sort of become of age where I left school and then I went and bought that gun I was already fully aware about how organized crime would operate and and, and the levels of it and um and I would say that I was quite alert and astute to that whole world because it's kind of like you start studying it. Um, like when, when I was a kid, like I could have told you about like the mafia in, in New York. I could have told you everything about it and the structures of it and how it works. And sort of like you're getting taught um, anti-surveillance techniques when, when I was a young person, like not to talk in a house and not to talk in cars and not to talk on phones. And this was when I was like 13 years old, like you're learning these skills. And then obviously you turn 16 and that's probably why when I did turn 16, again, that ambition and that drive and having that awareness, that's why, like, most normal 16-year-olds wouldn't think I'm going to buy a gun. 
But in that world, that was normal to own firearms. It was normal. It just, it felt like, obviously, even though this was instilled in you by those three guys who were head of organised crime, there's a, a, a huge amount of confidence that, I mean, has that carried on? Even though, obviously, you've turned your back on that world, did that actually, is there some positive foundation in having that amount of confidence and kind of it felt like you could read people very well read situations almost like be slightly take a step back from a situation and just suss it out basically yeah that that's that's what that when you asked me at the beginning of the podcast to sort of like explain who I was like yeah like that like, uh, my 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 character like going back to when I found out my dad died and having that ambition and that drive and that determination and wanted to do something with my life like wanting to be of significance wanting to uh, wanting to achieve something before I died like I've always had that inherent drive in me um and I, I, I so it manifested itself obviously with the environment that I was around as a kid um I chose to express it through crime um and when I got older and, and I went through another life-changing experience then it sort of manifested it itself into sport and then it then manifested itself into the stuff that I do today with charity and stuff. That passion and that drive, like, um, like I, I'll give I'll give you an example of this. Like, um, a couple of months ago, I um, I did another podcast with with another individual, and when it went out, I got tagged in a tweet by a guy that I was in prison with, and he'd been released. And it was quite a powerful moment because he reminded me of an event um that I basically have forgotten about so when I was in the high security unit in Belmarsh prison one day on Friday prayers it was over Ramadan and the Muslim inmates that were in there for terrorism so they were suicide bombers but the, obviously they didn't kill themselves they 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 got arrested they were in prison um and obviously I didn't agree with what they did but I've never liked bullies and I've never liked to see people um being sort of suppressed and and, and I've always had that in me of like helping people that have been being oppressed um and anyway the the prison officers tried to get got tried to stop them from praying on the exercise yard um at, at 12 at, um 12 a.m going into 12 so when they were praying the, the officers come into the exercise yard and they tried to stop them and and i wouldn't let the prison officers stop them because i said it's their religious beliefs i don't i don't believe in god they do they're they're expressing their religious beliefs you cannot stop them from praying and we had this sort of altercation and I got in the middle of these guys on the floor praying because they wouldn't break prayer. Um, and anyway, because of this, I got transferred out of that prison and moved to another prison because they said that I was being um, disobedient and I wasn't, um, I was subversive. I wasn't ab abiding by prison rules. And anyway, I, the guy reminded me of this and he, he tweeted me and he wasn't one of the suicide bombers. He was a Muslim in another prison um, that I got transferred to. And obviously it sort of traveled across with me. That's what I'd done. And that's why I got transferred to that other prison. And I remember he, 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 when he tagged me in the tweet, he just said that like, you've always been a good guy and always stood up and stuck up for people because, and then I, and it come back to me and, and, and my other friend like works at the United Nations. He saw the tweet and, and he messaged me and he said like, I'm really interested. Like, like was this through the process of your change? And I said, no, like this was when I very first got arrested. Like when I very, very first went into that unit in Belmarsh prison, that's when that happened. But I had this moral belief, like, again, like this, 
it's like fighting up and I'm like I know what they done was bad, but I'm just saying in that that situation where they they were praying to God, I didn't like the fact that someone was trying to stop them from praying to their God something they believed in, and 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 I thought they were being bullied and I didn't like that, so I wanted to stand up and stick up for them, and that's kind of like what my life's like today with other people that are being sort of oppressed and. Um, inequality within the system and, and and sort of the way it makes me feel when I see people that are suffering and struggling, it makes me want to help them um, however I can. And that's what I mean. Like, I think the way I am, my actual core um, hasn't really changed that much, but it was just about, I was just very misdirected as a young person um, by the sort of the the environment and the, and the men and role models that I had as a kid and, and how that sort of directed what I thought was right and wrong to a certain regard. But my core belief and who I am as a person, I don't think has changed that much. Where, where did that come from? Is that your mum? Would you without, say that? Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Like my mum, like my mum is when I was little, before Billy came into our lives, my mum worked two jobs. She worked as a florist and a cleaner. Um, she would give, um, she would give, honestly, and I know it's cliche, but she generally would give someone half the money in her purse. And, and, and again, I can remember a vivid story when I was a little boy. We was in the car one day and we were, we stopped at a set of traffic lights and one of these like squeegee men come to clean our, our windshield. And I was really young. I was like six or seven and I was messing around. And I said to um, the guy, I said, get away from my carpool person. And my mum went absolutely mental at me. I remember, I've never seen her so angry. She screamed at me and she said, you never, ever, ever talk to anyone ever like that in your life. And when I used to go to school at Christmas, she used to sit me down after Christmas and she used to say to me, when you go to school, you do not tell anyone what you got for Christmas in case they got nothing and you'll make them feel bad. And that was the way my mum was. But when Billy came to our lives, he was such a dominant presence, even though my mum was trying to like wrestle that control back of me. It's like my mum was a florist, like earning minimum wage. Billy's a multi, well, he, he had all the trappings of being a multi-millionaire and even I didn't know at the time how much money he had, but he did. Um, it's very hard when, when you've got these men over here and they're sort of like saying this is normal and this is how you should be. And your mum's saying you should go and get a job and do something with your life like that. It's very hard because you just look and, and then actually everything my mum said would end up happening to me, end up happening to me. Because um, she always say I was an accident waiting to happen. She said to me, she said, you, you, live, you live in the fast lane. And she said, eventually you will crash and burn. She went, you will crash and burn. She went, and she tried to explain it to me as I got a little bit older about all the years Billy spent in prison. But you never think your mum's right. And, and I wish I'd listened to her advice now. Uh, but yeah, she, she, she is a very compassionate, caring woman. And even to this day, like she's in her 60s now. And she's still like, she doesn't have to, but she still works in a care home and she still works with old people and stuff, even though she's basically old herself. She's still doing that as a job. Because she loves doing it. She loves getting up at half past five in the morning and getting there for seven. And she's in a routine. Because <laughs> so. I remember, I read in the book, you were talking about um, when you were in prison, you had victims of crime come in and there was an old lady, was it Doris, who came in and explained how like her house had been burgled and they couldn't afford to pay for the prescription for her husband or something like that. And you, and you know, you put your arms around her and you said, you know, those utter bastards or whatever it was. And then I think you had a bit of a shock because you always, or had thought your crimes were somewhat victimless. Mm -hmm. Um, and then 
just someone sort of explained it to you and just coming back to the bullying thing that felt like that was a massive epiphany as well yeah like you, you yeah like because again like when you when you're in that world um you kind of like it's always a, it, it was it is like it's very hard for me to express it into words today like and it, and it makes me sad like how much hate like I can't it, it, it I had so much hatred towards the system like the state uh politicians banks uh, I just thought it was I thought the system was corrupt to its core um and again it, it was the indoctrination of the the adults that were in my life as a kid and and I you're you're hearing stories of corrupt policemen and you're hearing stories of corrupting juries and corrupting judges and and you're hearing this and and, and like it's kind of like you're not going to be a victim of that. You're you're gonna you're gonna sort of um, you're gonna attack it, and and that's the way they chose to attack it through committing criminal activity towards it. But what I did, and what I think a lot of people do do in that mindset, because there was a lot of people very similar to me in that regard. You kind of start dehumanizing the individuals that work. Right, for instance, like and it, and, it, and again, it took me that process of when I was in prison, um, and I wanted to turn my life around and, and I wanted to do something else and you start understanding that like the state and the system and that hatred you've got towards it but realistically it's that man that's going to work every day that's walking that cash across from that transit van into that bank he's the one that's going to be the victim and you what you do and what, what I did and I've always accepted full responsibility for my actions you kind of like you justify it to yourself by saying well I never killed anyone I never hurt anyone and it but you don't realise the impact, the, the psychological impact you have over people's lives, and and that 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 they're things that even today that I'm a, I I am my outlook on life is so different now, um, and the way I perceive what life's about, like yeah, like that still really hurts me a lot that I was once like that, um, because like like before we come in there, like I said, like I wasn't Robin Hood, um, I wasn't I wasn't robbing off the rich to give to the poor. Um, I, 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 I was, I was attacking the state, but I thought I was attacking the state and taking off the state, taking from banks, the money was insured, but actually you were still having a massive impact over vulnerable people. Um, and that's something today, like even, even now, like it's still, it's still something I have to deal with in my life. Um, and probably that's probably why I'm, I'm as motivated as I am to stop other people making like the same poor life choices as me, because what, what I did and what other people do in those situations it isn't a mistake. You don't mistakenly do that stuff. You make poor life choices on, on, on what you know. And I made terrible, terrible life choices as a young person, thinking they were the right choices. But I didn't really have anyone else sort of re-guiding me down to any other road. Because, um, again, it wasn't a mistake. I didn't unintentionally do what I did. I intentionally done it. Um, but I made those decisions and, and they were just very poor life decisions based on what I thought was right and wrong at that moment in my life. When was there a moment where you took ownership of all of it and kind of really understood it? Yeah, like when when I made that decision to change, um, when I was 20, I was 26 years old at this point in prison, when my friend died and then I had this sort of epiphany moment in that prison cell that, and again, it was a very, very powerful moment because like throughout my life, like I've known people and, and known of people to, to be killed, 
I've known people to sort of <laughs> spend well the rest of their lives in prison, um, die in car crashes, die of drug overdoses, been murdered. But that stuff didn't happen to me, really. Like, phys- like to really close people to me. I was kind of, Im- I always used to think like, me and my friends are immune from all this. Like, this happens to like Michael up the road or Dave or Ben up the road. This isn't, they're people we know of, but it isn't someone that I really care about. And when it happened um, to my friend and he, and he actually died committing a robbery whilst I was in prison, it had such a profound impact on me because it made me look at my own mortality um, and how the fact that I had memories with this person and I was never going to have memories again with him because he ceased to exist and he never achieved what he should have achieved in life. And then it made me then look at myself and the day I got arrested, like I literally was on the pavement and I had like 20 machine guns pointed at my body. And literally if I would have moved in the wrong direction, my life would have ceased to exist in, in a, in basically this housing estate in South London when I was 22 years old. And it, and it made me look at my life at that moment in prison. And and this young boy that wanted to be successful and wanted to achieve something in his life and wanted to not just be average and, and do something with, with my life on earth. Actually, I was 26 years old, serving two life sentences, literally rotting in a prison cell. And, and, and even when I was in prison, I still thought I was at war with the system. So, like, I was still being as difficult, um, thinking it was me against the state, me against the system, thinking about escaping, not letting them beat me, not breaking, not being weak, when actually they had me where they wanted me. I was 26 years old, serving double life in prison, not out on the streets, not free. And, I, and then everyone that I looked up to, my, my, my stepdad, my stepdad's friends, they were literally all in prison serving life sentences for armed robbery. And then I looked around and, and, and all I had to show for all this sort of misery that I had caused was was this, this watch on my wrist, the £16,000 Rolex in prison. And, and, and I had these memories of, 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 of like doing stuff with people before I went to prison that I didn't even hear from anymore. They like just vanished into the dust. Like there was no loyalty and, and I was on my own. And I, and I just sat in that cell and I had this, 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 it was such a powerful moment in my life. Like I got upset um, when I found out my friend died and I can't, I, like, I'm not a very emotional person in that regard. And I can't remember a time in my life where I felt like I actually did start to cry and it had such a profound impact on me. And then I then said, I don't want this life no more. Like I want to do something significant with my life still. I want to achieve something, but I just do not want this life. And and I was like, I was in that prison cell and I genuinely, like I come out the next morning and when we got unlocked and I just felt completely and utterly lost and despondent because I just had this awakening and I looked around and I just thought, I don't want to be in this place with these people anymore. Like I need to get away from him. I need to escape, like not physically escape, but I need to get out of here mentally. Like it, it, and I, I, I use this sort of term so many times, but it's like being addicted to crack cocaine and being locked in a crack den. And, and I wanted to get away from these people. I didn't want to have conversations about crime. I didn't want to have conversations about people that were informers and people that were grasses in, on the on the wing and people were going to stab people. I didn't want to listen to this stuff anymore. I just, I, I didn't want to be around these individuals, these toxic, negative individuals. But I was trapped. I was literally, I was literally trapped because when you're in prison, you, you lose that choice. Like people listen to this podcast now can switch it off if they don't want to listen to it. But because that's choice. But when you're in prison, that gets taken away from you. You can't just get up and walk out the door and go, do you know what? I don't want to be around these people no more. I'm just going to go home or I'm going to go somewhere else because you're physically trapped in in an environment where people don't want to let you out. (laughs) 
But it's like the double whammy or the triple whammy of being physically trapped, emotionally trapped and mentally trapped. Like there's no, there's no way out of any of those no. things. No. Um, and, and I was, yeah, and I, I wasn't like a religious person. So I didn't go to church. I didn't have those outlets that sort of other people had other than exercise. That is, that was, that was all I had whilst I was in that situation was, was exercise in my cell um, and out in the exercise yard. So you, you said as well, like, so when you were 26, that was during your second stint in prison. Uh, this is when you had the epiphany. And you said, I was angry, I was trying to buck the system still, but they had me where they wanted me. So when, and the first time, I guess, what really struck me about the first time when you talked about exercising, is that you realised that you didn't want them to have anything over on you, over, over you at all. So when you were put in solitary for, as a punishment when they tried to take you out, you were like, no, I'm fine. Cause you didn't want them to think that they could punish you with it. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I, I never, I never intended to, to sit in that room for sort of for 365 days of my life. Like I didn't, I didn't think it was going to go, but I didn't, I didn't know when it was going to end, but I didn't anticipate. If you'd have said to me on day one of that, of me deciding to, to not leave that situation when they put me in there, um, was I going to sit there for the next calendar year for 24 hours a day? I wouldn't, I would have said, probably not but it transpired that that's exactly what didn't end up happening and I, I sat in that 12 by 8 foot cell for 24 hours a day for 365 days um and that that all come back from uh when, when I got sort of the punishment so I got seven days confined to cell um for refusing a lawful order so in prison when you're directed to do something by a prison officer and you refuse it's like breaking the law outside but you're breaking a prison rule um and you go in front of a governor and the governor's basically like the judge. And then they say what you what rule the regulation you broke. And then the judge, the, the judge or the governor gives you that that sentence, which was for me, it was seven days confined to cell in a segregation cell. And when he gave it to me, um, I just remembered he smiled at me and, and I, I went back to that cell. And again, like it comes back to that pure and absolute hatred to what they stood for, hating the system, hating the state, hating authority. And then you're in there, you're in prison and suddenly it's very real. Like before it's like this, this system's all everywhere. It's all about you. It's the police that drive past in cars. It's the surveillance teams. It's, it's the government. Uh, that's the state. That's the system. And then when you're in prison, it's a real human, right? It's a person with a, with a, with a uniform on, with a set of keys and he's locking you in that door and, and suddenly it's very real. And when he gave me that punishment, it was like, I went back to that cell and, and I, I picked up, a book off the librarian trolley she used to come around every week and there was a book on there um and nelson mandela was in it it was about nelson mandela and there was a there was a passage in the book about when he smoked tobacco on robin island he um he realized that the prison officers was using the fact that he smoked tobacco as a punishment against him for something to take away from him so then i thought actually if they think by putting me in this cell um it's a punishment i'll do what nelson mandela did nelson mandela stopped smoking cigarettes so i thought well, if they think they're going to punish me by putting me in this room, this is all they can do to me. They cannot do nothing else to me. They can't put me anywhere else. I am at the very, very end of the line here. And I just, it doesn't bother me. And I'll stay it. So when they open up the cell to let me back, I, I, I refused. And I said, no, I'm okay, thank you. And then, um, yeah, and then sort of I just had to develop a coping strategy of of being in that very sort of closed, confined space for that, well, for, again, I didn't realise how long it's going to be lot go on for, but... I knew it was probably going to go on for a fairly long time. So then I started reading books um, and I, I started exercising. And before this point, like I wasn't interested in sport as a kid. I hated PE at school. 
I had no interest in in athletics or anything whatsoever. Like I'd never done any element of sport whatsoever. I was I was overweight when I went to prison. Um, I was always going out with my stepdad. They was eating big meals. They was eating late at night. I started drinking alcohol and and I was overweight. And anyway, when I was in that room, I it wasn't about being an athlete. It wasn't about getting fit. It was about feeling alive and feeling like I was a human. Because being locked in that room for twenty four hours a day, um, someone once said to me, "When you go to prison, you don't live. You just exist." And it's just like one long day. Um, and I just had to feel like I was alive and I was a human. So I started doing these circuits in the cell. And at the beginning, I was, as I said, I was grossly unfit. And I would do 10 press-ups, 10 burpees, 10 press-ups, 10 sit-ups, 10 step-ups. And then as the weeks progressed, I just kept adding on to it. And eventually, I ended up doing a 1,000 of each exercise. And that was my routine. I would go up at 6 in the morning, half 6. I would do a circuit for like between an hour to an hour and a half. And then I'd read books for the rest of the day. I wouldn't get in my bed. So when they used to come around and look through the flap, I wasn't laying in bed. Because, um, again, I didn't want to show any element of weakness. I didn't want to look like I was like sleeping my prison sentence off. I wanted them to know that I was up and I was awake and I was being active in that room. Because, again, it was the it was the only thing I had control over. What is this? It's kind of like you wrestle back control of ownership of you. And, it, like, they, they, could, they could put me in this cage, but they couldn't control my body. They couldn't stop me from, from doing what I was doing. And it's that element of just wrestling back control over your own life in such a very confined space. Was it, I mean, because I've had it levelled at me before that I can be quite stubborn. And when I was reading the book, I was like, someone could have come into that cell and said, you're your own worst enemy by doing this. But actually, it was really positive because you were like, it, I guess the motive, it was the motivation, screw you, you can't make me... I'm fine in this cell and I'm going to, I'm going to make the best of the situation. But there was an element of like sticking two fingers up at the system still then. Mm. Yet it became very positive. Yeah. Like obviously I, yeah, like I've, I've obviously, I, I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot over, over the last sort of like five, six years of my life. Like decisions that I chose to make when I was 19 years old in that segregation cell I never, you could never have imagined. So like, I made those decisions, not even thinking about how my life was going to end up. It wasn't like there was a process. I didn't do that then as a process to be who I am now. I made those decisions for completely different reasons because it generally was like my absolute disdain and hatred towards prison and this system. So it was me being a very hateful person that triggered the motivation to train the way I trained, then the motivation to read and educate myself. That has basically led to how I am today. But I didn't make that. Like, it wasn't like I was going on that. It wasn't like I was an Olympic athlete at 16 that woke up and thought, I want to be an Olympian one day and I'm 16 years old and I'm going to train for the next 10 years. And when I'm 26, I want to go to the Olympic Games and I want to win three gold medals and I'm going to retire when I'm 40. Like their lives play out. Like I made those decisions to train and start exercising, never even imagining like the, the impact it was going to have over my adult life. Like because I, I didn't want to change because, again, that, that whole environment I grew up as in a kid, like I was always taught and this is. This is something that, again, it's, it's sort of like, it's, it's manifests itself out. It's like change was weak. Like, I was always brought up to believe if you changed, if you went to prison, you re rehabilitated. It was never spoken about as rehabilitation. It was just if you change, the system had broken you. And I wasn't broken by the system. The system would not break me. Like, 
I remember being as a little kid, like hearing stories about my uncle. Um, he tried to break out of prison in a helicopter, and he, he, he um, but he spent 17 years in in maximum security units in the country with with IRA, and and you hear these stories about him being on these like submarine units in Leicester, um, the, the most high security prisons you can be in, and then my stepdad, like again, 16 years in prison, five acquittals, like being in prison segregation units trying to escape from prison all, all of his friends trying to break out of prison vans when they're being escorted and you're, you're hearing these stories when they're in prison they, they're causing riots and they're, they're just not submitting how the system wants them to act they're not changing they're not going to be rehabilitated so then as a young person I'm in that cell I've got that mindset and then what ended up happening when I got released sort of I was still quite I was still young like and but I've come out of prison and obviously this is what I'm doing in this situation is sort of like it's dripping out of prison and people are hearing like, do you realise John's in prison? He's in the segregation cell, like he's not coming out. So then when I did come out, you get all this admiration. It's like, it's like you've earned your stripes. Like you've gone to prison. You didn't, you didn't give the police any information. You didn't grass anyone up. You sat there, you've done your prison time as hard as it could be. And they didn't break you and you got out the other side of it. And then what ends up happening in that world? It just opens up in a litany of opportunities and more and more doors open. And that's how that is how that world works. That's how it works. And and then I did end up getting released after that 365 days. And by the way, by the time I, the sentence had sort of played out, they basically just let me back out onto the street um, from that situation. And and, and I, I remember it like even when I got released from that prison sentence, I've never really spoken about this before. But when I was in the reception area, um, they give you a discharge grant. So when you get released from prison, you have any money you've had in your accounts, any money you've had sent into you, they basically, they transfer that back into cash. They give you a travel card and they give you a discharge grant. And the discharge grants, it was something like £105. And I remember when I was down at this, <laughs> when I was down to be released, I'm laughing because I, I just remember it so clear. So I didn't have any visits when I was in prison. Um, my mum never saw me. So the only clothes I had were literally the clothes that when I got sentenced in court, that's all I had in my store property in prison. So when they basically got, I, I, I basically had to walk out of prison in a suit that was too big for me because I lost so much weight. So when I'm in reception and they give me all this paperwork to fill in for my license, for this, that, the other, they've said to me about the, 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 um, the, the discharge grant. And I said, where's my money? And they gave it to me. And it was about 300 pounds of money that I had sent in over like the, the, the year or so. And when he's going to give me the discharge grant, I said, I don't want it. And he said, what do you mean you don't want it? I said, I'm not taking anything off you people. I don't want your money. I said, just keep it. And he went, what do you mean? I was like, keep it. I don't want nothing off you people. And I will never forget this. So as they were walking me out, the guy that the guy that I said that to, he said to me, John, and I said, I looked around, I said, what? He said, I'll be seeing you soon. You'll never be seeing me ever again. And yeah, lo and behold, obviously he, he didn't end up seeing me, but he was right because what ended up happening to me, I, I eventually, I got arrested again when, when I was a little bit older and I ended up in prison. But I just remember that, that situation with him and it, 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 obviously he knew my, my attitude and the way I was and that just dismissive of just like, not care, don't want your money, don't want nothing off you, just give me my money, I'm getting out of it. And then, um, yeah, and he said that to me and yeah, it, it's, 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 it's again, it's, 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 been, it's been a, it's been a journey. It's, it's been a journey. And, and do you know what's been quite like, what was actually quite nice is a coincidence as well. We're talking about this story because a few weeks ago, I, um, I sent 200 copies of my book back to that prison because obviously everything that's going on with the lockdown, 
children in prison, it's even worse because they're literally locked up for 23 and a half hours a day. And like, all education has been suspended. They're, they're only being let out for a very minimal amount of time to have exercise and showers. So we sent 200 copies of my book to this young offenders institution. And one of the prison officers still works in that prison. So, I was, so he's read the book and he sent me an email a couple of weeks back. And he just said, like, I'm so happy. I, mean, I, I don't know if you can remember me, but I'm just so happy you've managed to do something with your life. Even because I never thought you would end up becoming the man that you've become. And it was so nice to hear that. Like, and it's important because it just shows him that people can turn around and you can't just give up on people. And no one is a lost cause. Like he looks at me when I was 19 years old in that prison and he's worked in there ever since. And he's probably looked at, he thought I was a lost cause and he probably thought I was dead now. And he's read the book and realised I'm not. So maybe that's good for him to, to realise that you can't just give up on people and people are there and people want to, some people want to change and turn their lives around and do something positive for their lives. Because your story is the transformation is like the thing you're told not to think is possible. Like, yeah, no, that'll love. But you're sort of almost, you're also told to dream it is possible. It's one of those sorts of transformation stories. Yeah, like, yeah, like obviously when, when I realised when I was 26 that I, I had this talent, like I can't, I can't even describe it into words. Like I would visualise everything that I've got today. Like, I mean, I'm, I mean, it. I, I started reading, um, I read The Secret and about visualization and laws of attraction and Darren bought it in the prison officer. And, and I, and when I read this book and it, it, like it, everything that my life, the way my life manifested itself when, when I got released and the way my life's just sort of played out and the people that have come into my life. And, and I've had no real control over a lot of stuff. Like my, for instance, me getting sponsored by Nike, like it was the VP of, 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 of European marketing that read about me in a newspaper um, at an airport and he sent an email to London and was like, go and get this man. And everyone at Nike London, no one even knew who I was. Like, they were, what, who is this guy? Like, he does triathlon. No one knew who, like, obviously they've got their own scouts. People from European marketing don't start sending emails to the VP, doesn't send emails to Nike UK and says, there's, a, there's this guy that lives in London and you've got to go and find him and sponsor him and get him into the brand. Um, I had no control over that. But it's sort of like the way my, my life's played out and the way, I don't know, like the way I am as a person, I, I just had this this whole different mindset was just like I'm a beacon and whatever I project into the world, it will come back. So when I was violent and when I was very like toxic in my thing, I would draw those violent, toxic people into my life. And when I made that decision, like, I didn't want to be around these people anymore. And if I wanted to be successful and I wanted to achieve and I wanted to accomplish, I visualised like the things, like, the, the way my life played out in sport. And then, and then through that, it, it opened up amazing people to me, and and that and they're the people that changed my life. Like, it wasn't just me being very fit; it was it was the individuals, it was the people that changed my life. And someone made me aware of that quite recently. I was I was talking to someone, and he said, like, it isn't the power of sport; it's the power of people. He went, sport just takes you to the people, and then you meet the people, and then the people are the ones that shape your life. And when he when he said it to me, I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. I went. It was like Darren spotted I was physically good at something, but actually that was irrelevant. It was my relationship with Darren that changed my life. It was me and him, the prison officer. It was it was the way he guided and nurtured me and wanted me to be successful and and sort of and he's played a massive role in my life up to this point. So let's go back a little bit because before you met Darren, you uh, agreed to commit another armed robbery, and you have said that's the best decision you ever made. Which might sound yes. odd to listeners, but would you mind explaining why? So, like, 
when, when I got released from prison after serving that, um, when I got getting released from that segregation unit, after, so I, I spent two years in prison in total, like being on remand and then a year in that situation. And then I got out into the street. And um, like I said, I was very, um, I was still, I hadn't changed one little bit. I was still very, I was still very committed to, 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 to making lots of money. I thought success was by obtaining money and acquiring wealth. And it wasn't about being ostentatious with it. It was just that I, 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 I was very goal oriented. So like I wanted certain, so I went to hit certain numbers at certain points in my life. So when I was 21, I wanted to be a millionaire. When I was 30, I went X amount of millions. And it was never about being ostentatious and arrogant with it. It was just about, that's how I perceived success. It was about me personally having those goals and, and wanting to accomplish those goals. So when I got, re- when I got released from prison, um, that didn't diminish. It probably lit a fire up in me even more because I looked at two wasted years that I'd spent in prison and I hadn't accomplished anything. So I was even more adamant that when I got out, I wanted even more money. And I wanted to make it even quicker. I got out of prison. I'm out for a few days. I found tracking devices on my car. I knew the police were watching me. Um, and I thought, I know that they wasn't happy with how long I got in prison. They thought I should have got a lot longer. So I knew they was going to be determined to make sure I went back to prison. So I made the decision that I would have to kind of leave the United Kingdom and go abroad. Um, and I had friends and family out there. So I went to the Netherlands and I went to Spain. Um, and then when I was in Spain, kind of, you start becoming intoxicated, especially when you're living like, like my mum said, a million miles an hour. Um, you just get drawn into this culture of partying, of excessiveness. Um, but then I'm hanging out with men that are like got so much wealth. It was on a, it was just on a different stratosphere of wealth, like I, re- I remember a couple of times being around businessmen that were worth hundreds of millions of pounds and you're sitting with them and, and they're talking about wealth and money and, and influence and, and it, you, you, you want it even more. It makes you even more hungry to, to have it and obtain it. And, and I thought I was kind of set. I thought that was going to be my life. I thought I was going to end up living in Spain. I, I said my fa- lot of my, fra- my family were living out there. Um, but I made a decision to come back to Britain for a birthday party. And when I come back to Britain, I was only coming back for a week and then I was going to go back to Spain. And when I made this decision, uh, what ended up happening when I come back for that seven days was I ended up meeting up with my stepdad's best friend. And I met met him in a cafe in a place just outside a place called Bromley in Kent. Um, And the cafe was called The Chestnut. And and I'll never forget it. I've, I've gone and met him. We sat down. We're, we're, we're sitting near the window and we're, we're just exchanging pleasantries. How you been? Where have you been? And I said, I've just come back from Spain. And then he just said to me, like, do you want to do you want to go to work? And in crime, that means you want to go and commit a robbery. And at the beginning, I said, no, um, I said, I'm all right. Like, I'm only here for a couple of days. I'm going back out there. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything. And then he basically like. I don't know, like, again, I looked up to him when I was a little kid and he, he meant a lot to me when I was younger and I, I could see he was struggling a little bit financially and then he told me the sum of money um, and agreed to overcome me and then I looked at him and I felt a little bit sorry for him and I thought, you know what, it's easy money, I'll go and do it and then I'll leave by the end of the week because he wanted to do it the next day and I thought, it's just easy money and I've gone, no one even I've done it. Um, what I didn't realise when I'd just done that and like you said, it was the best decision I ever made in my life um, because I just walked into one of the biggest operations that the Metropolitan Police were running at that moment in London. He had a hundred man police surveillance operation watching him for three months up to that point. And then I've gone and met him 
And then they then sort of followed me home, realised who I was, and then the operation just blew up because then they realised they had two... In the, in the same place at the same time. Um, and then that was it. The operation just caught, sort of blew up and then it just doubled in size. I think there was 200 police officers involved um, and then they were just waiting for us to do it. And they ambushed us. We were meant to do it the next morning. We decided not to do it there. We were going to go and do another one. And once I was in that mindset, my gut told me not to do it. I, I was always a believer in life. Like, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. And then when we were meant to do it, and, and, and the van didn't turn up to make the delivery, my gut would tell me to walk away. That was it. It was not meant to happen. But I overrode rode my gut again through greed, and I decided, you know what, I'm in for a penny and for a pound. I've decided to do something, so I may as well do it. Um, and the next morning, when we go to do it, the police are waiting in ambush, and we end up getting arrested. And I, I, I remember when I was having the car chase, trying to get away from the police, I, um, I just remember having this voice in my head saying, I'm not going back to prison, I'm not going back to prison, because... The first time I didn't know what was coming, the next when I knew what was coming this time, I knew that segregation cell. I, I, I didn't, and obviously my life, what I, that I had formulated, I didn't want to, I didn't not want to go back to Spain. And I knew, I, and I just had this voice in my head, and it was like, I'm not going back to prison. And I just remember having this car chase, and I was fully prepared to die trying to get away from the police. I was fully, uh, it's a very hard situation, or very hard to sort of articulate. But I, I would have done anything to get out of that situation at that moment in time. But I did not want to go back to prison I'd, under no circumstances. But they ended up catching me five minutes later and I ended up having 20 machine guns pointing at me in, in South East London. And so you did go back to prison, but this is where this is where the story takes a really interesting turn. You mentioned Darren. So, I mean, was it as simple as, obviously it's oversimplifying it, but you go back and you start the exercise up again in the cell and then you found out that if you um did any kind of sporting activity for charity you could get more credits or passes to go to the gym than others so you started doing it that way and then was it darren walked past the rowing machine one day and went oh now that that's fast basically yeah (laughs) that that was just over the course of six years but yeah it kind of it kind of it kind of it was very similar to that it was again when, when I went back to prison a second time um I, I I kind of I had to I knew what coping strategies to use to get myself through it what got me through the last one so again the cell circuits the reading books at the beginning trying to beat your case realized that wasn't going to happen so then I knew I was going to get a long time in prison go to court I get the two life sentences and then I go back to back to my, I was in a high security unit in Belmarsh Prison. And it was like, what am I going to do now? I'm not going to be able to escape because they made that completely impossible. I mean, it's a tiny little unit in Belmarsh. I've got armed police every time I go out at the, at the prison to travel anywhere. So no one's, I'm not going to have to escape from the situation. So I'm going to kind of have to play the system. So I go on all the, all the offending behaviour courses. I thought I'd tick all the boxes. And once I go for my parole hearings, they can't not let me out. Because if I do everything they want me to do, I've got to play the game a little bit differently this time. I can't just sit in a prison cell and not do anything and get out because I've got these last sentences. So I've got to be able to demonstrate I'm no longer a risk to the public. So I did that. I started going for that process. I got moved out of that high security unit. I got moved to a maximum security prison in, in Full Sutton in Yorkshire. And I got moved out of there to a Category B prison, which is a lower security prison. And it was working. Like, I was, it was working. My plan was working. Like, I was doing everything they wanted me to do. I was ticking all the boxes and I was progressing through that system. And Aaron died 
and when I was in that Loudon Grange, which was the Category B prison, and like I said, like I needed to find that form of escapism from that situation of being locked in that place. And when I went down the prison gym, um, I found that escape to a degree. But when you're in prison, you only get a certain amount of prison um, gym sessions per week. You only get three. And that's to stop you from mixing with other wings because there's a lot of gang problems in prison. So certain gangs get put on certain wings and then it's only that wings that's allowed to go to um, to the prison gym at that lot of time. So you don't get mixings, mix, mixtures of different prison wings in the gym at the same time because you get a lot of fights. So when I went down the gym, there was a guy that was a little bit overweight, wasn't very fit, called Mickey Steele from Tottenham. And he was on that round machine seven days a week. And, and I went up to him and I asked him how he had so much gym. And he explained to me that he was rowing a million metres for charity. And, and basically, if I asked the gym officers if I could row a million metres um, for, 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 for my own pick charity, if it got agreed and I didn't have any issues on the other wings with gangs, that they would green light it. And I asked, they green lighted it. They said, yeah. So I went on the wing. I got sponsorship. Um, my mum sent me in some money and I give them the sponsorship form and I got on this round machine when I was 26 and started pouring the handle towards me and the first session I did was was 20 miles it was 32,000 metres I didn't know what I was doing technique was awful but when I was on that machine it kind of like it removed me from prison like no one spoke to me prison officers prisoners everyone left me alone and I just remember looking at these numbers on that monitor and and I could have been anywhere in the world. And, and I didn't really understand about endorphins and like they call it runners high. When you when you run for a long time, you feel this very like, it's like you get this very spiritual transcendence out of your body. Um, and that's why like lots of people that run marathons and ultra runners, they get this feeling like you, you start taking, it is literally like I've taken drugs, like I've taken ecstasy and stuff. And, and sometimes like, even now, like when I'm doing like big sessions and I'm doing four, five, six hours on the bike, or I'll go and run for two, two and a half hours. And I've got music on. I get to this point where, like, you kind of start, like, it's like you start coming out your body and just the endorphins are pumping into the brain. And obviously, I'm on this rowing machine. And I'm getting these sensations of this, like, these these, these, these booze, these smashes of endorphins into my brain. And I just felt amazing. I just, like, I was, like, transcending out of prison. And and I, and I just thought, I'm going to, I'm going to just going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. And and because of my personality, I, I've done 30, like, I did that first million in a month. I was running just over 20 miles a day. And then I thought, right, this is going to get me through. This process is going to get me through my prison sentence. And then I asked to do another million and then another million. That was that was a quarter of a year done. That was a million metres a month. And then when I did that third million, an inmate actually said to me, if I rode five million metres, that was equivalent to rowing across the Atlantic. And I thought it was quite a cool thing to say that, that I'd done. Right? I'd rode across the Atlantic on an indoor rowing machine. And and I can't explain to you like at this point like my my hands um, like I it was like I had like a bit of a claw hand like my my knuckles and stuff used to click because I spent so much time on this rowing machine it was like my body started like morphing in onto this rowing machine um, and the way my body like my lats grew my back my neck um, even though I got really sort of like my body fat went down but like muscular around my back and stuff and my whole body just morphed to this machine and and what ended up happening I kind of awoken up this this ability that I had deep in my body that I never even knew I had like I knew in prison that I was very fit like but when you're in prison you're in this little bubble it's like this this suspended state of reality you're not in the real world so I wasn't around sportsmen I was just around prisoners and there's a lot of prisoners in there that do a lot of like activity but I realized that like I was I was much much better than everyone else like there were guys that were like 
two, three, four, five stone bigger than me getting on a rowing machine and I could just hammer them. Even though they had the power and weight, they couldn't keep up with me. And when I started rowing that, that second final two million metres, one day I was rowing 10,000 metres of it. Um, and I was doing a harder session and Darren walked behind me in the prison gym and he looked over my shoulder as, as I just finished his session and he looked and he looked at the monitor and he just said, that is so fast. It's so, so fast. And I, I knew it was quick for prison. And he, and he went away and he came back a couple of days later and he gave me all these pieces of paper and they had all the world and British records. And he said, just take a look at these. And I looked at them and like, without sort of being arrogant, like, I, I didn't think they were real. Like, I, I, I looked and I thought they're not, but I can, I can break some of them now and I can nearly break some of the others. And, and it just, it planted this seed in my head and I w went back to my cell and then I went back to him and I thought, like, could, can I try to break some of these? And he went away to the governor of the prison. His name was called Gareth Sands. And Gareth Sands was a very religious man. He was very Christian. I remember he used to walk around the wings and he was always talking about God. And he was a very nice guy, quite young to have that position as a governor. And and I just remember Darren went and asked him and and and, and it, Darren went, I, I just think this could help him turn his life around. And Gareth, being a very religious man and it could have just been such a different situation if it was a, it was a sort of like a governor that just was all about just locking someone up and throwing away the keys and and Darren just said, I think he can turn his life around and Gareth said he can do it and 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 Gareth signed it off and it, that was it once the governor says yes that's yes and and the first record I attempted to break was for the marathon and I'd done that by seven minutes I broke it by seven full minutes and I remember when I broke that record I can remember it so vividly like I was on this gym mat and and I broke it just basically by pure force. Like it was it was all those mumps sitting on that round machine. Like I didn't know anything about sports nutrition or heart rate zones or being an athlete. I didn't know anything. It was just literally determination that I was not gonna do it. And I didn't realise I was gonna break it by so much. But when I did break it and I was on that gym mat, I just remember this 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 overwhelming sense of like accomplishment. And like everything I'd ever wanted as a little kid, like to, to achieve something in my life and to not be average and not be normal, that is how I felt at that moment on that map. And I thought no one can take this away from me. Like whatever happens, even if someone breaks it tomorrow, like I've always done this and, and I've actually, it was, I had accomplished it. And I realized that actually when I was a little kid, it was never about money. It's never been about money. Like I wasn't, ostentatious I wasn't arrogant with money like I said it wasn't about having money to show other people I had it it was about me having it set my own goals in life and it was about me feeling like I'd achieved something and been successful and accomplished something and I just made this attachment as a very young person the only way you could feel like that was by having money and by having wealth um, and I realized at that moment in that thing I, it, it like it, it was my body like I could use my my body as a vehicle to give me that like I could achieve and accomplish and and I, and that was what I was. That's what I I always wanted. And it comes back to what you said earlier. If Billy would not have come into my life when I was eight years old, I am a hundred and hundred and hundred and hundred and hundred hundred percent certain I would have not have gone down the road I ended up going down as a kid. If 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 Roger Bannister would have come into my life as a as a kid when I was eight years old, if he was alive then, or I I would have gone off and been a runner. If if. Uh, if Steve Jobs would have come into my life as a kid, I would have probably gone off and been an entrepreneur. I would have done something else in my life because I had the characteristics, I had the attributes, and like even when I was when I started having this this sort of like this growth through being a sportsman, and I started reading his autobiographies of, of these 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 elite level sportsmen, 
And I couldn't believe how similar I was to this group of people. But I was reading books about James Cracknell, an Olympic rower, and Paula Radcliffe, and all these athletes that had accomplished amazing things. And like, I had never been exposed to these sorts of people in my life. And then when I started reading these books, I could relate to them, like their mindsets, the way they processed the world, the way they saw the world, how driven they were, how focused they were. And the only people I ever saw like that were criminals. I never, ever, ever saw anyone else that fought like me that did other stuff. And then I realised, and I always say this to kids, they, I'm, the, 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 the way I am and the, the drive and the will and, and, the, and the wanting to be good at something, these attributes were massively detrimental to me when I applied them into crime. The moment I refocused them into something positive, they become massive attributes that allowed me to be very successful. And it's all about that shift. It's just shifting what, because a lot of people are very good and talented and stuff, but it's about the shift in the direction and where you choose to put that energy. I pull it into something very negative. I wanted to commit the biggest robbery in the world. I wanted to be a multimillionaire. And then, the, the, the ambition was there. It was just misguided. And once I've been channeled it in something positive, it's allowed me to be sort of, it allowed me to be as successful as what I have been um, by, by doing sport um, and being sort of physically active. And it's just that reshifting. It's it strikes me that the original thing to like have a legacy to be a multimillionaire, it was about accumulating things from the world. But actually what you ended up doing was unlocking something that had been inside the whole time if you want to go down the like spiritual route it was always there it's like you say it was just unlocking it yeah and and redirecting it yeah having an awakening it is it's like it's like having an awakening like the way you then process the world now you visualize and see the world and the the, the, and again it's it's life experience like I, i i say it a lot like like i've i've been around men right and uh, this is this is not just brought me up, but even when I was in prison, like I've been around men and had conversations with humans that are willing to literally die for what they believe in. Like they would kill me and everyone else for what they believe in. So when you have interactions with people, like this, and again, I was very inquisitive. So when I was in these environments, I'm sitting there with people and I've always loved, like, I've enjoyed politics. I, I, even though I hated politicians, I liked understanding how these structures worked. Um, and I've always had a fascination. I grew up Margaret Thatcher's prime minister. And I remember like I, my first memory was when Yasser Arafat was in a compound in, in, in Gaza when I was a kid watching it on news at 10. And I wanted to understand why Israel and Palestine and all these problems were happening. This when I was a little kid. Like I've always had that fascination and I've always liked understanding issues. And I've always said to fix a problem, you must understand why the other people think the way they think. And it's all about people's perceptions of reality. It's how you see the world based on what you think the world's about. But to have to, to change anything, you have to have dialogue with people. So you can't just say, I hate this group of people. I'm not going to talk to them. They're vile, horrible people. You need to engage with them to change them, to set them to see a different, to a different vision of the world and get them to see differently. And so being in the situation that I was in when I was in prison for 10 years and, and the environment and being around the sort of individuals I was around, to a very extreme nature, like, you don't get the sort of people that I was with walking down the street to have a conversation with in a coffee shop anymore. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But that's allowed me to this work that I do today to sit there with other people and be able to negotiate and be able to influence those people to do good things. Do you know what I mean? Like when I've been in situations with politicians and political aides and organisations, 
And it's about reshifting the dialogue and, and, and reframing conversations and understanding their viewpoint, even though I might not agree with it, but you have to have dialogue. But that's all come through that awakening that, because I was once one of those people, like I saw groups of people I didn't really like, I didn't want to talk to them. I was like, I'm not talking to you, I think you're scum. But actually, when I was in that situation, I was forced to live with people I didn't agree with. You kind of have to have a dialogue. And then that's given me a skill set that years later, again, I never thought this would happen, has allowed me to have this incredible, colourful awakening where, like, I un- I do understand how how someone's got to that point. I might not agree with it, but I understand why they've got to that point of why they think the way they think. And that all comes back to, again, that journey of, of going into prison and having that growth whilst I was in that situation to have that awakening. Because it really struck me when I was reading the book and also listening to you in the past about all the people who've really supported you. Like Darren, there are other people who have really, um, like you've been honest with them and they've been like, I don't care. And that, I don't think that would be the same experience for everybody. There's obviously something about you and maybe it's because you're inquisitive and you care about them too. But one of the things that really struck me is when you were renting the room from your friend. And you, yeah. yeah. And you thought I'd better sort of sit her down and tell her that I've been in prison. And she was so nice about it. And I have to admit, if I had been in the same situation, I don't think I would have been as compassionate as Una was because I would have had I would have been scared. And I thought, well, there obviously has to be something about you that meant that her reaction was, well, the interaction I've had with you overrides that information. I I think, again, like. Like (laughs) good people do do bad stuff. And I, I think sometimes you, like, I, I've got no doubt, Emma, if you would have met me 16 years ago and we'd say we would have met, we was out. I, I, I believe whatever opinion you've got of me today, you'd have probably had the same opinion of me 15 years ago. You would not have thought in a million years. Like, even when I was in, even when I was in prison, I remember, like, uh, sometimes I, I could just remember, like, even on my parole hearing, like the judge and, and the and the panel sat across the table from me and the woman was looking down and she was looking up and she was looking down and she was looking up and she just said, I cannot, this isn't you. And, but, but there's a big but to that caveat because this is, that was actually quite detrimental to me in some regards because they saw that as me being, um, because I was so immersed into that world of organised crime, um, it was like, I everything in life is based on a cost analysis basis. So like you you risk and reward. It's like the risk you take, and you see businesses. You see crime as a, as a business transaction, um, and she found it very challenging to to sort of get her head around the fact that the way I was and the way I presented myself to her that day, and I was talking to her. Um, but 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 I but again, it comes back to what I said. Like I have always been the way I am, like this. Like I've always been like that. Um, and I think a lot of people really struggled to sort of get their heads around the stuff I did because of that, because I was sort of always very talkative. I, I, and, and that comes back from my mum, because my mum's exactly the same. Like my mum, my mum's like that. If you met my mum, my mum doesn't sort of shut up. And I, I, and I think that that, that sort of, that, that's my personality. And with Una, when, when I got out of prison, bear in mind, like before I moved in with her, I was at the rowing club and um, I was kind of, People only knew me as this new guy called John that turned up and that, that was it. And then obviously as the relationship develops and I spent 
a long time at the rowing club, like four months before I moved in with her. She only knew me as John that wasn't in prison. And obviously we built up this rapport and relationship with each other. And then once we built that up, and once my past started coming out, it broke down sort of stereotypes of what other people thought that people like me would be like. Because people do, you just, people do, you watch films and you see these films of these people that have been in prison and people that have been in prison for armed robbery. And you just think they will, they're, they're violent animals. They can't, you list like some of the most charismatic, charming, polite people I've ever come across in my life were some of the most dangerous men I've ever come across in my life. Like when I was a little kid growing up, like you, you'd be these people and they're very charming and stuff, and but but then they had this other side to them. Um, but going back to what I said a minute ago, I, I don't think deep down I was, I, I'm not a bad person. I just think, again, I just made very bad life choices based on what I thought was right um, as a kid by, by the environment in which I was in. And it's like, if you're a seed and you're putting poisonous soil as a child, and you're that little seed and someone's putting water on you and you're in that poisonous, toxic soil, that tree's going to grow up and die. And 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 sadly, um, I sadly, I was in that soil, but thankfully, I sort of managed to reroute myself later on in my life. But lots of people don't, and that, which is a travesty, and it's very, very sad. Can I ask as well, we've, we've talked about um, the motivation to begin with in the cell was sort of came from a hateful place of you're not going to break me. And I wonder when you realise you had this experience, you were, you suddenly had this feeling, you had this epiphany of everything that I thought I wanted, I've, I've got from breaking this record and realising what I can do physically. When you have people like prison wardens, for example, who are saying, I'll see you again, John, was there a part of you that... was Because you, there, we, we've discussed that maybe there was an element of being quite stubborn. Did you... Did you feel um, embar- not embarrassed is the wrong word, but uh, being being the one that actually did exactly what they wanted? When did your stubbornness break? And if someone was like, "Oh, I never thought," you know, did you ever worry about what they were going to think, and that maybe they would laugh at you for sort of like, in their eyes, breaking under their will? Um, I do you know what I I, I went through. Um, so when when. You have to understand, like the, the world that I grew up in, everything I've gone on to do in my life would be massively, massively frowned upon. So, like, like that, that would, that would, like, that would, in in that world, at the, the like the the, the the level that I and the people that were around me were at, um, everything I've gone on to do in my life, speaking at Conservative Party conference, going to Ten Downing Street interacting with police officers, interacting with the judiciary, going to prisons, talking to inmates. All of that stuff is like that's that 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 would that would that would blackball you forever. I in that world, I would be known as a grass, right? That that's how that's how I'd be perceived to do what I'd done today. Um by certain elements of it. There's been I've always actually surprisingly enough, there's always been a, I've always had a lot of very positive feedback by people I was in prison with like as inmates, when they've got released and seen what I've done and, and they've always been very supportive. But then there's other fractions that haven't been very supportive of it. Um, but once I went through that process of understanding that for you to grow as a person and like that law of attraction and what you want into your life, you have to radiate out. So if you want to be positive and you want to achieve in your life, you've got to, you've got to radiate that and you'll attract those individuals into your life. People will see you've got a nice character, a nice aura, they want to help you and stuff. So when I made that decision, that's how I was going to channel my life and what, how I was going to think, 
I understood I had to cut all of that negative toxic element of my life out I had to completely get rid of them like and, and that was like I stopped writing letters to people that was in was, was outside of prison people didn't even know most people didn't even know when I got released from prison because I stopped bringing them up I stopped phoning them because I understood to, to really move on with my life you you have to make that clean clean break and I know this sounds quite callous but if I went to a doctor and a doctor said to me John you've got cancer on your arm and if you leave that cancer there you are going to be dead within the next 12 months if I cut it off it's a small operation and you'll be out within 20 minutes you're mad to say sit there and say actually just leave it on and die cut that cancer out so I saw those people with being very cancerous now once I cut those out of my life these were the important people in my life right these were people that I'd known since I was a kid, but I knew I had to break away from them to, to really move on. And it becomes very liberating then because then you really don't care what anyone thinks or says anymore, which I don't. Like, people are always going to have their opinions. People are always going to think what they think. But reality is, um, like, I, and I'm, again, it comes back to this whole thing where I perceive what death's about and what life's about. Um, I've probably got 35, 40 summers left before I'm gone realistically i'm not going to make one decision based on what someone else thinks is right or wrong for my life so a couple of years back um i remember i got this massive letter it was like chapter and verse from one of my family members and they posted it to my um to my mum's and i remember it was a it was just full of hate it was like i hope you die everything you've done since you've come out you're horrible you're this you're that and i remember one reading this letter and i was quite it made me actually very happy to know that person wasn't in my life anymore and it was very reassuring to know that I made the right decisions based on, on thinking what these people would think of me. But say, for instance, I did read that letter and it did have an impact over me. And I did decide not to keep pursuing my dream. And I decided just to give up on it and actually doing everything they wanted me to do. I wouldn't have then gone on and I wouldn't have competed in Ironman. I wouldn't have met all the amazing people I've gone on to meet. I wouldn't have. I've, I've had a positive impact over thousands of people's lives. I wouldn't have been sponsored by Nike. I wouldn't have been able to leave the United Kingdom and travel around the world. I wouldn't have been able to do any of these things based on one person's letter to me. And, and again, when it's very liberating, when you just don't care what other people think of you and go, do you know what? You've got your opinion. I really don't care. Like, and, and I've had it before on social media. When, when this, again, it's very, very rare. But every now and again, like I had, um, I, <laughs> I had a death threat a couple of years ago. And I remember reading it and I'm, and, and I honestly felt, I was reading this death threat, it was basically, I hope you die, I um, hope someone shoots you, and, and I was reading it, and I, I would never normally respond, and I actually, I wrote back, and I said, after this, I'm going to block you, but I just want you to know, I really feel sorry for you, because the hate you've got towards me doesn't bother me, like, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, and I'm going to go and swim, and then I'll go after that, and then I'm going to go, I'm, I'm good, like, all that hate that you're carrying around about what I'm doing, it's only affecting you negatively, not me. So I said, if I was you, I'd let go of that hate. I wouldn't follow me. I wouldn't read anything you see about me. And you just get on with your life and just channel your energy and something positive. Because if you want to, if you want to do something with your life and you want, you want to be negative or positive, that's that's your course, your life on earth, not mine. But coming back to the, what I just said with, with with the family and stuff, it's just you just have to make that clear break sometimes, and um, and just just you just follow your own dreams and channel your own energy into your own things and. And don't allow other people to dictate what you do and don't do in life by the way they, they make you feel. Um, and if, if someone makes you feel not so good and, and doesn't encourage you, just don't have them in your life. It, and I know it's easy. It says, I say it sounds easier said than done, but 
we've got such a short period moment in brief spec of life on earth how long the planet's been here and why waste it um, not living your full potential because you don't want to upset someone else you, you can't it reminds me of something else you said that kind of really hit me in the gut when I heard it, where you said you've had conversations with a lot of people and I can't believe how much they imprison themselves in their own mind. I, 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 I find it mad. I, I, even, honestly, I, I find it incredible. I, even, even today, like, you, you talk to people and, and I, I, I've, I've, I've been imprisoned with people that are more free than people that are that are outside, it's they're 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 in, they're entrapped and imprisoned in situations that they can they can they can get out of. You you've got choice. You can choose to do something else. And it, and it, like honestly, like no one no one has ever 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 given me anything. Like when I come out, I remember I I had like I can't explain to you how dark the hole was I was in in when I was in prison. Like. I, when I went to prison on the second time and I was kept in that high security unit, I was literally at the end of the line. Like, there is nowhere you can go in this country. It was a hole in a hole in a hole. And then it was locked. Like, the chances of me getting out of that situation and coming out and no, one's, no one gave me anything. Like, no one done anything for me. No one's ever gone, there, there you go, John. And it, I just say, and I'm no different to anyone else, but I just had a belief system and I, I believed that my life could get better when I wanted it to get better. And I, and I believed that I could make those changes. And, and people did doubt me. So many people doubted me. I didn't, even, I didn't even get released from prison on my first parole hearing because the judge thought I was a fantasist. But I was so committed to doing what I was going to go and do in my life. I sat there in front of him and I said, I am going to do it. And that meant me not getting released from prison. But I was so adamant that... I was so focused that I was going to do it and I believed in myself so much. And what ended up happening, all these doubters, as I progressed on that journey, they just got quieter and quieter and quieter. And then suddenly everyone believed in me. It was always, I always knew you was capable of doing it. But people didn't along that road. And loads of people doubted me and loads of people tried to take me off track. Loads of people said I wasn't going to be good enough. I was too old or um and, and, and but but i wasn't and and, and, I, and no one is I, I believe we've all got gifts and talents and abilities in life and, and, and you can harness them and you can achieve it doesn't matter how old you are and the situation you're in you can always change your situation but you you have to take ownership of it and you've got to be the one to make that choice to change so how does this play into the work that you're doing now because you're i mean you really are doing the work and you're working with a lot of people like you said your book's gone into prisons you go into prisons but like what it sounds like you're doing a lot. What exactly are you doing and how are you trying to affect change? Because obviously you're, you're a great example because you can stand anywhere. You can stand in the House of Commons. You can stand in the Rose Garden at 10 Downing Street. In the Young Offenders Institution, you can go, oh, I've done it. Mm. Which, which is the most powerful argument there is. Because like, when you've been defined by the state and the system as being the worst of the worst of the worst, which they did. They categorised me in that category. They they put me in that situation, that prison situation, where I was a double category A level three, level three prisoner. That is literally out of, there was 90,000 men in prison. And out of that, there was 28 of us in the whole country that were on that level of security. And most of those were in there for terrorism. So when you've been categorised by something that the state understands, they get that, they understand where you were at that point. When you've gone from that to where I am today and you can make the connection to actually go, wait there, guys, if I've done what I've done in my life, 
how can't these other group of 90,000 or 85,000 people that sit in prison also can't change? It doesn't have to be through sport. It doesn't always have to be through physical activity. It can be through reading, writing, the arts, creativity. It can be, it, it can be opening up opportunities for these people whilst they're in prison to help them with their rehabilitation. So obviously my story is a very profound, powerful argument and it's very difficult for people that don't believe in what I say, because I do fundamentally believe all my years of being in prison, the impact sport and exercise can have within that setting for rehabilitation is absolutely huge. With, without question, I would say if you went into prison and you spoke to most prisoners in this country, and I would probably hasten to add in the United States or America and said, what are the most important things to you in this situation right now? And most of them would say food, gym, visits. And then, so you've so you got you got the hook. You got the hook. You got something they love doing, right? Which is physical activity. So once you start putting threads in through that of education or learning, so instead of making and some people want to go to a classroom, but you've got to understand. 56,000 of the 86,000 people in prison were all excluded from school. So when you try to lock up people into classrooms in prison, just to tick off the hours to say, well, we're getting them in a classroom for five hours a day. What are they actually doing in those five hours? Are they just sitting there with their mates messing around or are they actually learning stuff? Like, but with sport and, edu and, and educating through sport, you can get qualifications, you can learn, your coaches can go in, organizations can go in and deliver programming to, to, to people, at young people, women, men that are in prison. But you've got the hook of getting them into something they're passionate about. And then when they get released from prison, again, people are far more likely to stick at something they love doing. So when they come out of prison, like with me, I had a job working in the gym chain when I first come out. I loved it. I loved going to work. I never had a job in my whole life. And then suddenly I got released from prison. I, I went there. I, I never had a boss like, in my whole life. No one ever told me what to do, like in regards of a work setting. 29 years old, suddenly I've got a boss, but I'm working in the gym. I love doing it. And this gym had an amazing success rate of inmates coming out, working in the gym, then going off to become personal trainers. Not everyone can become a personal trainer, but there's other job opportunities that, that can be had. So me going into these settings, and, and, and again, I've been very fortunate where like, I've been at the Ministry of Justice and with the Secretary of State and 10 Downing Street um, and the Conservative Party Conference. And I've been able to discuss and, and influence the debate around what sport can do for, for people in prison, but then also in society, um, for young people to prevent them from going into to, to prison in the first place and making those poor life choices. And, and obviously, because I'm, I'm the example of what can be done, um, and then relating that back by saying, but I'm no different to anyone else. Like, if I've done what I've done in my life, anyone can do anything, but you need to be given the opportunity. Because you've said as well, yeah, because you were one of 28 guys in the highest security prison out of 90,000. Like, if you can do it, it's not like it's the extreme to the extreme, isn't it? Yeah, you can't. You, you literally like you. There, there, there's there's literally there was nowhere else to go. Like I'll give you. Do you know what? A couple a uh, couple months ago, there was a documentary on uh, Channel Three, and Ross Kemp went into Belmarsh Prison. Yeah. I didn't, but I know he said no chance. So he 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 went in there, right? So anyway, I don't normally watch that stuff, and anyway. For, for whatever reason, I sat indoors and, it, and, I, and I don't normally watch TV. And someone said, this is old. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to watch it because I, I don't personally like sometimes the way that prisons are perceived in regards of how like the reporting is of prisons. It's very negative. They never really tell any of the good stories. 
And obviously, people in prison are limited to these TV channels. So they're only watching this very negative stuff about people coming out, reoffending, going back in. And obviously, it sets off this whole catalyst of this negative mindset because people in prison haven't got access to lots of prison TV stations in their cell. So I knew this was going to be a big program on. And I knew a lot of people in prison would be watching Ross Kemp. So I sat there and watched it. And when he went in there, I thought there is no way they are going to let him on that high security unit in Belmarsh because it was it was the most high security prison installation in Western Europe. Like it was built in the late 90s. And it literally when I was in there, no journalists were allowed to come on there. Right. None. And when he's doing the TV programme, he starts walking over to it and then he says, I'm going to go into this unit. And I, I couldn't I couldn't believe they were actually going to let him in. And, and he goes in. And then I'm seeing something I have not seen since 2007. And he's walked back onto his unit and this wave of memories, the smell of the bleach, everything. I'm watching it. And then he, they, they take him to the cells and he goes in this cell. And the, and the governor says, like, now you are at the end of the line. There is nowhere else for you to go now. And he, he went, can you lock me in it? And he obviously gets locked in it with the cameraman. And they shut the door. And he just says, I need to get out of here. Like, I feel so claustrophobic. I sat there and I'm, I remember the hairs on my neck started standing up. And I went to bed. I woke up the next morning and I was driving to the swimming pool. And I thought to myself, whatever happens in the rest of my life, I'm winning. Even if I have not got a pot to piss in, and I'm sleeping on my mum's sofa. Watching that, I've won. Like, I got out of it. I survived it. I got out of that situation and I've gone on with my life. And even if I'm free and I'm not in that environment, I'm winning in life. And I don't need nothing else. And it just reframed everything I was doing. And it just gave me this whole new clarity of, like, because sometimes you do take for granted that you you can get up and pop, go out and ride your bike, go and run around the park and go to the swimming pool and swim. And I might go to a lake today. But you don't realise what a privilege it actually is to be able to do it, to it's taken away from you. And when I saw him in that cell, it took me back 10, 15 years. I've been in that exactly the same cell, locked up like an animal for 23 and a half hours a day, with basically all your hopes taken away from you. And I thought, you know what? I'm winning. Like, I'm getting up, going to the swimming pool, and I'm winning in life. But I recommend you should watch it, because after you've spoken to me now, you can really get an idea of how oppressive it, um, it actually is. It, it really strikes me that you're always paying attention. And in a way that, like that, you watch that documentary and you could have, the hairs on your neck could have stood up on end and you could have had all those memories of the smell of it and how it felt. And then you could have just got on with your life. But something, you were paying attention, you were like, well, what am I going to learn from this? Is And it feels like that's something that maybe you always do. Like, what... You don't, you're, you're not someone who seems to coast and just let life happen to you. No. Even no, in like, prison. No, no. Like, even, even like, years ago, like, I, I was always very renowned for it within my friendship group years ago. Um, like, I, I, I was, like, I've, I've always been a very deep thinker, like, from, from when I can even remember. Like I said, like, even going back to when my dad died, like, about death and... And then when I grew up, obviously, you, your life experience, and I was partying and stuff, but I still always had this very, like, I, I remember I, I saw a quote once. It was from, like, an Aborigine, and it was it was about going to war over land and, like, about empires and, 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 and humans. We all fight over stuff. We all die, but that stuff still stays there. Like, the land's still the land. Like, if, if all of us died tomorrow, America would still be that dot of land where it is at the moment. Britain would still be the island where it is. We'll all be gone, but it will still be there, but the amount of people that have died over these over ownership of these things. 
And I, and I remember like, I picked up this stone on this beach and I said it to my mate. I said, like, me and you could fight and kill ourselves or you kill me, I'll kill you over that, that stone. Then you died 60 years later, but that stone still sits on the beach. And we've died, both of us have died basically for nothing. Or I've died for nothing and you've lived or you've died and I've lived. And I just, I always saw life through different lens to other people. And, and sometimes I can tell, like, you talk to people and they sort of zone out because like, even the stuff I watch, like, I, love, I love learning. I love, I, love, I love having an understanding of what life's about. And again, you grow and develop as, as you get older. And like, like, I've noticed it when I go to the mountains and stuff. And, I, and I, it's not about training to get fit. Like when I go out, there, I ride my bike and stuff, and yeah, I'm racing. But I go out there, and I, I didn't realise like how it makes me feel. It just makes me feel one night. It makes me feel free, and I'm riding up these mountains, and it's just you just feel this element. And it's probably comes to spending ten years in prison and, and having that all taken away from you. And but yeah, like you, you question like what what is what is it all about? Like I often think, like what is it all about? Like why why are we here? What are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like. It's, 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 it, when, you, when you think about the bigger picture of it like the, the planets have been here for billions of years and we're just these little specks walking around and like we're like grains of sand like on the beach like, you can go very deep about this stuff but it does like, I, but I enjoy it like, and I love talking to people that make me think differently and you talk to people and they, they make you see life differently and you can have some really deep conversations with yeah. people especially with glasses of wine <laughs> there is Sarah. that um I just wanted to unpick something else that you said about um and you've said about it like you were a fundamentally good person if I'd met you 15 years ago I wouldn't have thought you were a terrible human being I would have been like oh he's a, he's a good guy and you've said people aren't bad but their circumstances might be and it seems like what you're trying to do now and you are obviously an athlete so you train all the time I'm very jealous that you're in open water today <laughs> see it on your Instagram and I'm like what I wouldn't give to go for a swim right now um but uh you're you're also like I said doing all this work you're going and giving talks and everything and you are are you going into prisons at the moment or is that not possible because of lockdown yeah it's probably not going to be for quite a long time to be honest but um are you able to uh, I'm wondering whether some of the feedback that you're getting or what you're noticing when you're shifting when you're talking to people is helping them understand that like somebody might already be within the prison system somehow and think well this is my life now or this is my identity are you are you seeing that you're able to make that breakthrough of saying this is just for right now like this is just because of your circumstances that led you here now but today you could change the way you think and you could be somewhere else so like so like so when we when so basically when this whole lockdown situation happened um, it made me feel very, um, that I'm very privileged. I, I know I recognize the privilege I'm in. So like, I sit here and I've got Apple TV. I can sit here, watch documentaries every night. I've got my bike upstairs. So when I was on lockdown, I'm sitting here, I'm comfortable. I've got my bike upstairs. I'm still training. And I actually didn't think my life was affected that much. I thought I can go outside once a day and I can go and do my run session. I had a rowing machine that I was using to replicate my swims. And I was sitting on my bike upstairs for three, four, five hours. And actually, I was like, I'm still getting the training hours in. Like, my life hasn't really changed. And I could have been in this little bubble of thinking, well, it's a bit of an inconvenience, this lockdown. But because of, like, the relationships I've got with a lot of people in completely different facets of society, like, I was on the phone every day in the evenings, afternoons. Um, even I was on my bike, WhatsApps from youth workers, people that work at food banks, people that work with really vulnerable people. 
And and I was getting this sort of um all this feedback about how bad it was for other people. And I, I have an awareness of it. Like I know, I, I, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it. Um, so I, I knew, but when you're, when you're actually getting numbers and you're, 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 you're just going, this is horrific. And it, and I sat here and I really started feeling guilty. Like I felt really, really guilty. Like I felt like I needed to be suffering as much as them. And I know it sounds quite bizarre. Um, but then I, I sort of sat there and I thought, right, I can't do what I normally do. So the, the, the influencing stuff, like the going to the, the home office and meeting ministers and aides and organisations and you're influencing, you're getting things to happen. That's all stopped, basically. Everything's now been paused. So that part of my life stopped. It was like the stuff I was doing to have that impact, to help people, has all basically just been paused because no one's doing anything in that regard now because now it's just basically fighting fires. It's not actually moving the conversation, changing stuff. And I remember just sitting there and I was like, what, I need to start doing other stuff. So I, I started like, I did a charity ride upstairs on my bike and through the food banks um, and raised, like, raised quite a lot of money doing that. And then I was, I thought, right, I'm going to set every day. Um, I don't do what I normally do, so I'm going to do an act of kindness. And I saw it on, on Rung and Chatterjee's um, Instagram thing. And me and him become quite good friends. I saw it. So I thought every day I'm going to do something. So I saw the binman outside. I gave him a tip doing the bins and then. I would go and whatever it is, the neighbours and some, some of the families that I knew like locally but very vulnerable, I was dropping food off. And, and then I started signing up to PPE. And, and then I thought, well, I'm going to be of service in other ways, which I've never actually really done before because most of the stuff I do has always been like, yeah, I've gone in and talked to people, but I've never like done the volunteering stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've never gone down. So I thought, this is what I'm going to experience stuff. And, and actually, in this whole situation, I went to the food bank and the woman, like the like, what runs it, called Daphne. She's absolutely incredible. She set the food bank up in Hammersmith and Fulham, and um, it's the biggest one in London. And me and her become quite good friends. And she invited. I asked if I could go down, so I went down and we was packing up this food. And I was on this line with with, with all these all these different individuals. And and I was at the end. I was packing like sticking up the boxes and stuff and these parcels. And I can't explain to you, like when you're packing this stuff up, these parcels of food and there's there's eggs, there's, there was Easter eggs in it, and you realise your children are getting this stuff, um, and then it has to sit on the pallets. But every single one of those parcels is literally a lifeline to a family. And without those, given without these people in this line doing this work, these families wouldn't eat. And without Dolphin running the food bank, these families wouldn't eat. And it's literally the only lifeline they've got. And I was sitting there with, 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 with one person that was a solicitor standing next to me, and another person was a barman, and he'd been furloughed. And me and him were chatting and he said, I'm probably not going to have a job to go back to. And I said, can I ask you a question? Like, why, why are you doing this? Like, I'm interested. Like, why are you doing it? And he just said, like, I just thought I was very fortunate. I've been furloughed and I could have gone and got like a job on the side. But I thought I should actually really be giving up my time to other people. And it, it was so beautiful to see other individuals that were so selfless and just, just trying to help the community and help other people. And it just, it, it made me just feel so warm. Like she's always negative press and everything was negative and negative, but there's so many incredible humors out there doing such amazing stuff. And, and it just encouraged me to keep doing more of that. And, um, and just, I said, adapting what I was doing in lockdown um, because I did feel quite guilty and I still do. Like, I, cause, cause again, when you're having this very close interaction with people that are really struggling, um, you, you feel like sometimes you want to help the world, but you can't. And it's very, very, very hard. Like, like my, my really good friend Terry's often said it to me. Like, I got to a point a couple of years ago where, like, I was, I because again that mindset that I've got. I um I went into a prison, 
and I've never seen a girl, a child girl, like female, in prison before, like ever. So I've been, I've been around sort of terrorists and serial killers and all sorts of stuff throughout my time through prison. But when I went in and visited a, a, a children's prison, which was called an STC, um, the prison officer asked me to go and um, he asked me if I'd like to go and see where the children sleep. And he walked me onto this unit and it was kind of like, they tried to make it as uninstitutional as possible, but it's impossible because they're basically in prison. They just don't call it a prison. And he walked me to um, this metal door, like a cell that I was in. He opened it and we walked in and it was like a little girl's bedroom. And there was posters on the wall, pop stars, and there's pictures of her mom and her nan. And she had all the letters um, that people had set, sent her with toothpaste stuck to the wall. And she was like 14 years old. And I was like, how on earth has it got to this? That to children and it and it made me so angry. I remember I got in my car and I was driving home and then I, I got into this mindset where like I was like, I need to go, I need to do more, I need to help. And I remember me and Terry had a conversation about it. And Terry said, You need to realise you can't change the world. Like you can't help everyone. You can you can help, you can only do what you can do, because what can then happen? Because I, I went through this stage, like I said a minute ago, of like I felt I needed to suffer. To, to 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 also sort of like help other people because they're going through that process so I can't be not suffering but they are suffering like I need to feel how they feel but you, you can't do that you you because if you're not good you're no good to anyone you can't help other people um but again it's that it's sort of the mindset that I've got and that 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 was a pivotal moment like when I saw that little girl sell well when, when I saw that little girl sell it just had such an, a, a profound impact on me and um and I needed to sort of just start, sort of like rein it in a little bit and understand that like I couldn't you can't help everyone you can't you can't make everyone's life better you can only do what you can do and and if that means you can only help one person that's you can only help one person if you can help 10 you help 10 but you have um a, a unique position in that because of your story and because of your experience people listen to you and by people I mean politicians like people in a position of power so you can make you can make a difference and you can make a change but I guess yeah you can't go and say right here here's here's my list of things I want you to change so it's kind of picking what you think is most important I guess yeah and and that's like to be fair like that that was that was when I went through that moment and I sat down and started assessing what I was doing like I'm only I'm I'm a I'm a very limited resource like I can't be everywhere I can't go I would love to go to all 7,000 schools and talk to every single child in full school assembly like I'd love to do that I'd love to go to every prison in the country every week and sit there and talk to all 86,000 inmates I can't I physically can't do it there's not enough of me but so when I when that situation happened with that going into that cell and seeing that situation with that and, and coming away from it how it made me feel I then started looking at where I was using my time and what I was doing with my time. Like, where was I applying it? Was I being efficient with it? And I wasn't being efficient with it because what I was doing, I was trying to help everyone and I was spreading myself so thinly, it was becoming of a detriment to me and it was affecting me. It was affecting that I started getting injured. I was getting sick. Um, and then you're, you're standing up and you're, you're speaking to like a thousand people and you're under that stress and then you're coming off and you, you're going home and you're swimming four can at night. And obviously, it's it's a perfect storm to burn yourself out. And even though I'm very resilient um, because of situations I've been the way I am. Um, I remember Terry again said to me once, he said, that's your Achilles heel because you will keep digging. Most people would, would get to a point where they, they feel bad, but they just keep, but I wouldn't. I would just keep digging and digging and digging and digging and just feel like I can just absorb it and suffer it and suffer it. But eventually, everyone has a point where you'll snap 
Um, so then when, when that happened to me, and I, I didn't get to that, reach that point, but when that happened to me with that little girl when I left, I thought, right, I need to be more efficient with what I'm doing, like with my time. I can't do as many hands-on school talks, but I can do the meetings that are going to have the far greatest impact. So if that means me going to the cabinet office um, and, and meeting the prime minister's policy advising team, going to 10 Downing Street, trying to change policy um, of opening up schools in the six weeks holiday and giving young people opportunities to use schools as community hubs and get sport organisations to go in. If I can go to the home office and get more sporting organisations like the Twinning Project with football clubs going into prisons to, to win up with each prison, park running prisons, like that stuff, that's one, two meetings. You go in, you can influence. And obviously there's work goes on behind it, but it's not so laborious. But but that will affect thousands, hundreds of thousands of people's lives instead of the the one to one stuff that I was doing and that stuff and training as well. And I know we've talked about like hating the system, like at school it was teachers and then it was uh, the police and politicians and now you're working with them. <laughs> How do you put that, the hatred that you used to have or the disdain that you used to have for them in your back pocket to actually work with them to move forward? Um, <laughs> what you realise, because it, it comes back to what I was saying earlier on about you, like realistically, they're human beings, they're people. Um, they, like, they, they are, they, they're humans. Um, when when I'm with them, like you, you, you enter into dialogue and, and again, you might not have the same political beliefs. You might not think the same, but there's a common ground somewhere. There's something somewhere where you all think. And, and, and most of the time, like they are very, they are, they're, 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 they're decent people. Um, they are. And, and again, you get these tribes of left wing, right wing, like far right, far left. And you, you have to negotiate, you have to speak, you have to talk. You have to be able to have a dialogue um, and try to influence. Now, sometimes what I've come to realise is the, the, the common ground isn't necessarily doing the right thing, right? Now, this is this is what I've come to realise. Sometimes it isn't. It isn't doing the right thing. The common ground what you might have to find would be the fact of doing the right thing helps them get into power or it, it's public opinion appeals to it. So then that's how you have to go. So you can't sort of like go in there and... And, and, and story tell and, and tell a story about a young girl that's in prison because they go yeah it's really sad that doesn't do it what might do it is the fact that you say that that saves x amount of millions of pounds and 86 percent of the public in britain think that's a good idea to do that's a vote winner we do it and and it's about repositioning stuff and and i think probably that comes from probably watching a lot of political documentaries and stuff but it, it's just having an awareness again of when what you're going into and and, and like I said, like um, like Dr. Philip Lee, for instance, he's, he was a, he was his um, secretary of state for youth justice. And me and him, um, he, he asked me to go up in a meeting three, three and a half years ago. And he and he really took me into that world of politics and and and, and, and really to a high level because he was secretary of state for youth justice. Like he's a front bench minister and he loved rowing. Um, and me and him just got on. He was a doctor and. And we just found, we just formed this like really re amazing relationship, and we started coincidentally doing events together, where basically he would be my warm-up act, and he would get up, and then I would get up after him, and because he, he was building into the narrative about using the power of sport within the criminal justice system, and obviously then he would then flip it over to me, and then I would then take the baton on it, and then I would then sort of finish off the show, and and we did this act a few times, and and, and he invited me to the Conservative Party conference, and and that was a very 
pivotal moment in what I was doing because like I remember after I finished there was a there was a couple of aides that come up to me outside and spoke to me and again it come back to that I can't believe you was in prison for what you was in prison for and you've and you've just the way you are like, I just can't and I, and I and again it's very powerful when you're with these people and you can show them that realistically I was once that piece of shit that you thought should be thrown away in prison that like some newspaper said throw away the key and never let me out again and they did all these all these all these tabloid newspapers sort of killed me they, and, 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 and rightly so like I, I did bad stuff and and I, I put myself in that position but um, but you can change and you can turn your life around and it's very important that when I'm in those situations if I'm able to show these people it can change the way that they perceive what rehabilitation's about and and the fact that people do change and, and you're showing them an example of it that they can understand because again in, in some way they can look at me and, and and they can sort of relate to me in some regard they appreciate what I've done they respect what I've done physically as an athlete they understand Nike they understand everything else that I'm doing in the community and all they they get it they see it and they go yo you're an amazing success story and I go but but, but again it's only because someone gave me an opportunity and I choose to take it, take it and when I took it that's what's led to where I am but once upon a time I was that once piece of shit that should never be let out and you said it is about people. And I remember a few years ago, I was reading a Facebook post that one of my friends put up and they were talking about the real rise in crime uh, in London, you know, the street crime, like the acid attacks and various other things that really had a bit of a surge, probably about two or three years ago. And somebody replied who worked at the police, he said, it's because we we don't have any role models anymore. There are no role models because, well, for various reasons, you know, there was uh, all the scandal about um male uh not role models but like you know taking advantage of uh, uh underage mm. boys and things like that and so everything kind of dismantled and now the role models are the criminals yeah and that's why we're seeing a rise in in these sorts of crimes but if everything i've read about what you're doing it feels like it's putting the role models back in and because darren in that prison gym was the person who not only encouraged you but i guess sort of made you think I, I can do something but he believed in you as much as maybe you were needing to believe in yourself and now it seems like you're doing that for kids everywhere or people everywhere yeah like it's because it, again it, it comes back to all about in, our influencing negative influences so like by by being role model and demonstrating to young people what's possible and what you can achieve so like that journey I've been on since I've been out of prison it's all been about amplifying the message and the story about what I'm doing, but staying credible and never selling out. So like 99.9% .9 of the opportunities that I get offered, I turn down. I will only work with people that I believe are going to help me pushing that agenda forward and amplifying my message out to the biggest audience possible. It's not about celebrity. It's not about fame. It's not about being on TV. It's about having that message and having the voice, a credible voice to show young people you don't need to do bad things to get on in life and showing them that we're all possible. It's all possible to achieve in your life. And we've all got talents and abilities locked within our bodies, but it's about expressing them. And that comes through again. That's, 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 that's an obligation. I think of society to, to unlock those opportunities by presenting the opportunity to the young person or people to go and show them what's possible and what they can go and do and unlocking opportunities. And like, uh, it, it, it's like quite topical at the moment with, with, um, with the whole black lives matter. Like, it's no good people just sharing black squares. It's about when this is done, 
and this snooze cycle ends in two weeks or a week's time, people need to start stepping up in business, in other facets of society, and, and yes, calling out racism, but then also providing opportunities to these young people. Because the only way you will change the system is by getting these young people in the system. Because otherwise, you're always going to have the same status quo. Everything will just be business as normal. Young people, these young people need to get into positions to be lawyers, to be judges, to be QCs. They need to get into positions to be in government. And, and they need to go and vote. They need to have a voice, voice. They can't be disenfranchised from the system. They need to all have a voice. They need to understand the significance of their voice because that's how you will create that change. So by me having my voice, if I can awaken just a few of them to spark something inside them, actually goes, you know what? I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a solicitor. I want to change the world. And 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 I see it and, and it breaks. Honestly, I can't explain to you sometimes how much it kills me. Like, I wish, I honestly wish I had millions of pounds that I was able, when I see some of these kids, like there was, there was one young girl at an event I did recently and her dream was to go to Cambridge University to become a lawyer, to basically defend people that were arrested for crimes they didn't commit. That was her dream. And she told her teachers at school that she went to go to Cambridge and, and they laughed at her and said, it's just not, it's not achievable. And she got really upset. And I said, of course it's achievable. There's no reason why you can't do it. I mean, if you want to do it, you can do it. It might not be Cambridge University. It might be Oxford. It might be any university, but you can do it. You can go through that process and come out and become a lawyer and help people and work with people. And I just wish I had the money because, again, the limiting source to this situation is most of the time is, is finances. They can't access the opportunity to do these things. Um, but, again, it's like me trying to use the platform in any way I can and leveraging opportunities that I can unlock through brands and through other individuals that I've met to provide opportunities for young people and giving them that that sort of that empowerment that they believe in themselves that they can do it but then then unlocking the actual real world opportunity then gives them the actual real world way in to go and start implementing what they want to do with their lives. In the work that you've done have you observed that uh, young black people are disproportionately disadvantaged? without a shadow of a doubt like i can't even explain when when you go to prison it like you you would be blind if you walk around felt young offenders institution like literally literally i I, i'm not i don't want to be disrespectful but if you walked into felton you would honestly think that black people made up the higher percentage of the united kingdom it literally is that bad it's like just basically the prison when i walked around like and i took visitors in before and they can't even believe it it's like majority um young people in felt from ethnic minorities um and 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 also like it's very interesting i observed this quite interesting a few months ago right so (laughs) the crime i was committing i've never been sort of um i can't i don't actually don't think i've ever been stopped and searched i don't think i have in my whole life right so bear in mind what i do I've not been stopped by the police since I've been out of prison once in my car, like driving around. And I was at a community centre in Crystal Palace and there was a group of young people, probably 10 of them in total. Four of them were at the Gloves Not Guns, which was the community service, community centre. They go through like the programming, the boxing club and stuff. And the other like five or six of them hadn't, but they were all mates. And anyway, at that point, I don't know if you remember it before last Christmas, there was this day, this spat of like, young people running into like JD Sports and ransacking the stores and running out. And in, the police had intel in Croydon that 
these groups of young black people were, were, were running into these stores and stealing products and then running out. And anyway, I turn up, I park the car up, I'm walking to community centre. There's a group of young kids there. A couple of them re- recognise me. So we all start speaking. They just tell me they've just been stopped by the police. So I said, what for? And they said it was stop and search because they had intel that there were groups of young black men that were, were going were gonna to attempt to run into Jetty Sports in Croydon. And, and I said, oh, how, how, can I ask you a question? I went, how do you feel? I mean, because I've never been through this process before. I don't know what it feels like to walk down the street, police pull out in a van and then start wanting to pat you down and question you, where have you been, looking in your pockets. And he said, do you know what, John, I, I understand it. Like, I'm, a, I'm a young black man. They said it was black men that were like work in a local area that were running into JD Sports doing this. And he, and he had this awareness that he understood why they were doing it. And then there was the other group that were like, fuck the police, very disenfranchised with them. And, but I, I, I do totally understand because they didn't do anything wrong. They were literally going to the youth club as well to go boxing. But it was very interesting to see the young group of kids that were, were in the youth club and actually gone through the whole program. And the other kids that were coming that night that don't normally go, the whole perception of how that event transpired and what it was. So this group, the, the, the smaller group that go to the program, saw it because of the mentoring and they had a bit more of an understanding of why it happened, where the other group didn't. And it was very like, I don't give a shit, like, fuck the police, fuck the police. And they were very disenfranchised with how they how the police made them feel. Um, but yeah, without a shadow, and, and, and also just, just in general terms, like when I do a lot of work um, with communities, community groups across London, like you can definitely notice it's disproportionately you can you can just it's glaringly obvious in the, the, the amount of i would say younger black people that don't don't engage in again lack of opportunity in sport to participate um limited resources to go and participate in into into sport and like i said when you go to prison it's abundantly clear when you're in prisons so it is about putting opportunity out there obviously for everybody but if there is a specific areas or demographics that aren't getting those opportunities it's about shining a light on that too yeah yeah and providing those opportunities that's why i'm so adamant that i just hope this isn't a 24-hour news cycle and then next week it will be something else like i i hope people really 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 understand and appreciate um that that we all need to step up that, and, it, and it isn't just like posting stuff on social media. It's about real world. Like if you're in a position um, that you can provide these young people opportunities to get into positions of power in, in business and stuff, that you, you should be opening up those doors. If you believe it, you should you have to practice what you preach. And if you think what's happening, it, it, there's an injustice, it, it, you, you have to step up. And it isn't just about sharing pictures and liking stuff. It's actually about real world, tangible stuff to change people's lives. Because the only way you will change that system, it isn't going to change voluntarily. It is not going to change voluntarily. You have to infiltrate it. And then you have to then engage young people to start voting. Because once they start voting and they're big voting blocks, politicians will start changing legislation. You get people in you want in that you don't want in. But young people need to feel like they're part of the political process to change that political process. I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I really, I, I, I would love it if the, if the system would, would voluntarily change. I, I, I just, I personally can't see it. I can't see some, someone like Donald Trump overnight miraculously changing and saying, I want to do things completely differently. I can't see that. Um, I might be wrong, but I think it's very unlikely. But what he would understand and what politics and politicians understand is voting. And if we can, if you can engage young people to go out and use their voices and to go and vote for change, 
And then for, for people that believe there's there's a lot of injustice that are in positions of power that start opening up their doors and start giving these young people opportunities to go and work in, into, into businesses and brands and, and become lawyers and solicitors and universities completely start opening up and the level and the playing field becomes a little bit more fairer, then I think you will get that systemic change in the system. It's going to take a long time, though. It's not going to happen overnight. Like It's going to be a long, long process. But we need to start somewhere. And I, I hope this is the catalyst. And I do really, really hope that people kind of start waking up and having an awareness of how bad it actually is for, for other groups of people in, in society. And a lot of the time, people live in cocoon bubbles. And like, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the lockdown. Like The lockdown was like, I said it, 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 was, like, it was like one big ocean. We we're all on the same sea, but we we're all in different boats. Like there were some of us that were in little life rafts and some of us in big pleasure ships. Like our situation for this, this is completely different, and it and it will be like once this all ends, there'll be lots of people that will kind of come out of it and benefit, and there'll be other people that will come out and and sort of sink. And 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 like we have to have, I, I think it's very society has to have a greater awareness of the inadequacies and the inequality throughout the system, and that's something again I've had that awareness by my sort of experience of going into communities and talking to people from different walks of life. And then once you have this awareness, it does change you. It changes you because you start seeing it and understanding it. And then you start appreciating not only how lucky you are, but actually you can help change other people's lives. And I think a lot, I don't think people are inherently bad. I don't think it's like, there's some people that just want, 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 want. But I do think there's a lot of people that, 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 that are very good people, but they just don't know what they can do to help other people. And I know it sounds a bit stupid, but they don't. And I get quite a lot of people saying to me, what can I do to help? I've seen you do this, how can I help? And, and there's been lots of occasions where people have got in contact with me and sent me an email and I've been able to link them up to a charity and then then sort of the, that business has then let kids from the charity or the school to do to workshops into the into the, into the the businesses and show kids these opportunities. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, IMG Sports um, let a group of kids from a school down in Essex come and do a work experience day and these kids most of them had never been out of Basildon before and then when they got to IMG Studios in Chiswick they walked into the studios and they couldn't believe people had jobs not wearing suits and ties like because all, all the cameramen had flip-flops on and shorts and t-shirts and and then I was going I want to be a cameraman when I'm older because they've never had this experience they've never seen it and it, and that that's such a small thing to do for a business like that but it can have such profound impacts over a young person's life. And I know a lot of people who are listening to this, like really brilliant listeners who will be listening, thinking, well, I want to make a change or how can I help or what can I do? Because it does feel like, as you say, there's no point. It's all well and good posting a black tile to show your support, but it's about putting your shoulder to something and like putting your force behind it. And that will take time. That takes learning. But it might be quite a big question. But if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, and the audience is global all over the world so but they're thinking right actually this has really made me realize I need to contribute to my community because I think community is maybe something as well that we maybe feel less of a part of over the last few years it's all kind of um, dismantles as well if somebody felt like they wanted to put their shoulder to something and make a difference can you give any insight or any tips on how they could begin that process yeah, so like for instance, in myself, like I've I've done it numerous times where I've come across um, like on social media, like I've I've been online and and, and the charity's popped up, um, and then I just don't I just it's simple as emailing the charity and saying, do you need help? And I'm I'm, I'm adamant that ninety nine percent of them will return back and say yes. 
whatever you can do to offer because a lot of them are struggling. They need that help. They need to support the community to help them. So I would say whatever you've got a passion for, if it's if it's young people, if it's old people, if it's if it's uh, the community church, if it's food banks, whatever it is, just do a bit of research and it is as easy as that. And, and, and literally finding something in your local area where you've got that passion for. Um, and, and I would also say sometimes like it's not that it's not that you shouldn't help the bigger ones, but the smaller ones need it the most. And, and they're the ones in the community I've found over the years that like you've got UNICEF that are connected to the UN. You've got the Princesses Trust that get 70, 70, 80, 90 million pounds a year into it. But it's the smaller ones, grassroots charities in your local community. And you know what? Most of the time it isn't even um, it isn't even like money. It's time, like the amount of times I've spoke to community leaders where um, one in particular, one in particular, and this goes back to Black Lives Matter. Um, it was called Fight for Change. And I went down and visited and I was saying about like, what, what is it? What do you need? What would you say you need the most? And they said, John, do you know something? It comes back to relatable role models again. These young black men. If you said if what they're sold is success or what they're sold all the time to, to not be involved in criminal activity in this community is you're a musician, you're an actor, you're a football player. They're the only three things. Right. Or you can be a barber. Right. Right. That that's all you're that's all you're seeing to deem what success would be. And they was like, if you can find anyone that was an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor that would be willing to come down one evening and doing a talk to the kids. And not, they don't have to have like <clears throat> a life story where they've gone through this like, massive epiphany and stuff. It was just average people, people that young people can relate to, so they can identify with them and say, yeah, so I went there and I went to university and then I was a doctor. And I, but people that these young people from those communities can identify and relate to. And it was all about, again, planting the seeds, opening up the awareness that these young men say, actually, there's no reason why I can't become a doctor or I can't become a lawyer or a solicitor or an accountant. There's other, there's other avenues that I can go down in life. I could be a musician. Or I could be, but I was good at music. I could go and do other stuff. But it's, it's creating that awareness. So I'd say to your listeners, sometimes you, you've all got skills. Um, another good friend of mine works for Nike. Amazing, amazing in marketing. Amazing woman. Like She's got an incredible mind. Um, very, very uh, creative. And what, does she do? what was she doing? Every Friday, she was giving up half of her day. She was going to work for a charity, helping them with their media comms. And she was helping them reach out to different demographics to, to bring in sponsorship money. So it isn't about necessarily you donating the money. It's about using what you're good at, your skills. So if you're a good makeup artist, again, my friend Una was going in and doing makeup um, um, classes to young girls at Woodland School in Basildon. Uh, again, it was showing them there was an industry there. She works for the Daily Mail now. She does all the beautician stuff. So she was showing these young girls and showing them before and after pictures where pictures were airbrushed, where they weren't real. And she was saying, look, like what you're seeing on social media isn't always what it looks like. And but she was creating awareness. She was showing these young girls that there, there's, there's a job here. Like you can do other things. I didn't go to university to learn to do this stuff. And now I work for the Daily Mail. So and, and doing doing the makeup and stuff every Saturday. So it, I would say to people that are listening, it isn't just about giving money and donating. It's about you can donate your time and your time most of the time will be more valuable than you making a financial contribution. And everyone that, or most people that are listening to this right now are probably very talented at something. They're very successful in what they've chosen to do in their lives. So it's like, how can I utilize that talent and, and, and basically pass that gift on to other people to show them 
that you could also do what I do or, or even just create an awareness that there's opportunities for this because a lot of young people don't understand because they don't see it. So if you don't, you only know what you know in life. And if you don't know these other industries exist, you don't, you don't know there's a, there's the, the Daily Mail has a makeup team that does like models makeup and IMG filmed Sky um, sports football and stuff with, with shorts and t-shirts on. But when you go there and you see it, plants to see, you go back to school and go, actually, that's what I want to do when I'm an adult. It's like you, it's like the eight-year-old John McAvoy who got shown away and was on, got put on a path. But um, you, yeah. you only see what you, you're only going to see what you're shown. So actually, yeah, it's not about a donation. It's about if you have a skill, share it, share it, show people how to do it. And go, down, go to the youth centre, just email them, say, would you be interested? Go, and do you know what? Sometimes that can be quite intimidating because like uh, a really good friend of mine, again, um, works in football. Um, for Nike and he went and delivered a talk one night to young people and I remember he phoned me up before he went to do it and like he does presentations to thousands of people like thousands and thousands of people presenting boots and all this stuff and, and he was quite anxious and nervous about it because he was like I don't think these kids from like southeast London are going to be able to relate to me like I've gone to university I said mate trust me just go and do it and I bet you you will not understand the impact you're having on these kids because you're just giving them your time right and he went in and he started speaking to these young people and instantly, because of who he worked for, that got him in, that sucked him in. Then they're asking him questions about how they sell boots, how they do this, how there's career paths into getting work in there. And he's got all this knowledge about all. And then didn't realise like he had, I think, 90 intern emails. So when he tries to be an intern for different businesses, rejected, but he didn't give up. He kept persevering. So obviously he's talking to these young people and when he's, he didn't realise himself really like the impact that had over him, but he kept getting rejected, 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 rejected. And eventually someone years later from Nike emailed him back and said, actually, do you still need that internship or do you need a job? And he ended up getting a job years later when he didn't think that was going to ever happen. So obviously when he's talking to these young people, they're like, oh, wow, like, yeah, that's, 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 that kind of, that's happening for me and stuff. And, but, but he never gave up and, and he didn't realise how much he could plant those seeds in these young people's minds. So everyone can um and it can be quite i said it can be quite daunting at first because you think oh what are they going to think about me but believe me just giving you your their time they will be respectful of it and you will have more knowledge and influence over them than you're ever going to imagine it's like you were saying earlier about the law of attraction putting it out there so that it comes not comes back to you for reward but putting it out putting it out there the life you want to live for example and then manifesting it and you're doing it for other people you're helping them see you're helping them attract what they maybe don't know exists yet which is really quite lovely yeah. <laughs> um i could talk to you for um 11 more hours but i've already taken up quite a lot of your time so i think we will um wrap it up there um but thank you thank you so much for your generosity of time and also just all this information it's been amazing Oh, no, I can't, I can't wait to listen to it. I'll listen to it back. <laughs> well, I will let you know when it's live. And obviously, I'll put the links to you and everything in the show notes. And I'm sure I will be inundated with requests for you to come back. And hopefully, uh, we can do that not over the internet. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care, Emma. Thank you so much for listening. I really do hope that you enjoyed that conversation with John. What an incredible guy. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. If you go to the show notes, you can also click on the link to join the Facebook forum where me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast will welcome you with open arms and chat to you about pretty much anything you would like. 
just to flag up something about John, John's story is so multi-layered and such an incredible story. He has already appeared on some other podcasts and really told stories more about his childhood, more about his time in prison. So if you were intrigued and wanted to unpick a little bit more I obviously didn't want to repeat his story on this podcast I wanted to try and move it forward but if you do want to listen to those episodes I will put the links in he did a brilliant podcast with Russell Brand a wonderful one with Rich Roll and he was uh, he's been on uh, our, our good friend Dr. Rongan Chatterjee's podcast twice so I'll put those links in the show notes if you'd just like to hear a little bit more of his story a little bit more about his childhood about the time in prison and other aspects because obviously as you can tell it would have been very easy to talk for 10 hours but I think I gave you two but there are also some other resources if you want to find out more and you never know maybe John will come back soon thank you so much for listening I'll see you on the next one